it. It's Daryl Fordyce in injury time. And FC Edmonton are 2 1 up and back from the dead against the New York Cosmos. Uh, what a comeback. What character shown by the Eddies. Welcome to the Aristocrat Soccer Podcast, the elite soccer podcast in all of soccer podcasting and podcasting in general. I'm here with David Harris with Jake Keegan, my co-host, Marion Cole, our other co-host, is on assignment. Jake, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great, Dave. Marion may join us mid-episode, so we'll have to see. Yes, that we're very <laughs> excited and hoping that she'll be able to, but currently on assignment as we speak. <laughs> it, hey, we don't pay her, so that's kind of how it goes. Uh, but we're joined this week. We're joined this week uh, by Daryl Fordyce, an old teammate of mine with FC Edmonton in 2016 and 2017. So, Daryl, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, guys, for having me. Yeah, very excited on, on my part too, Daryl. Like, uh, you know, I've gotten to know follow you more through. You know, I was following you through the NASL. You know, because I remember seeing you and Albert play with Edmonton you know, against the Cosmos. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, a couple of guys from Northern Ireland. And then uh, when Jake went to Edmonton and stuff, you know, it was really cool. So really excited to have you on, talk about football and your career and all uh, different twists and turns it's taken. Yeah, um, I've been all over the place. <laughs> Ireland, Northern Ireland, England, America, Canada. Um, still going. So who knows where I'll end up next? Away <laughs> says... Why say no more moving? Getting <laughs> opportunities in some very interesting parts of the world, Daryl. Yeah, Dave sure. and I had, yeah, Dave and I had decided that we could only do one Belfast brother at a time. So uh, Albert has to have his own episode, and you have to have your own episode. So oh, yeah. oh Albert, will not shut up. You're never gonna say him whenever he gets going. <laughs> now that's, that's what his, said about you, though. Yeah. <laughs> and his, his dad jokes are not as good as mine. <laughs> I, I will say that Daryl has the best dad jokes of any player I've played with. And that, that's don't, saying don't. a lot. <laughs> that was before it was a dad as well. <laughs> before we jump too far into it, though, I, I was telling Jake, I was reading in one of the articles with last season with Valor, like you were, uh, I guess, doing Zoom calls or something. And something with like you were busy with the kids while the Zoom calls were on and the teammates were like getting on you, like, what was that about, Daryl? Yeah, well, obviously we get on the Zoom Zoom calls to do workouts, as every other team in the world started doing, and uh, the, the daycare get close, so the child was running running about, climbing over me whenever I'm trying to do push-ups, sit-ups, um, and then even one day my wife wasn't in, and, and I think halfway through he uh, he took a turd in the middle of the floor. <laughs> <laughs> uh so yeah it was it was uh it was tough uh but it was a good way to get a little rest between between sets um, <laughs> but no the, the boys were laughing and it was it was a good bit of a crack uh and, and again he's he's turned into a fantastic kid uh but again if, if we were doing it now you'd be you'd be headbutting me and throwing the computer across the room uh yeah the boys had a good laugh i i, I didn't get my work in properly but it was good fun. <laughs> yeah, you, you saw that all the time with like whether it's kids or pets. Like I had I had a cat with me for the quarantine workouts, and he'd be walking across the stream, just uh, <laughs> just causing a havoc. Uh, but 
So after that quarantine, we all went through it and we all went through those workouts. What was that Island Island games like for you guys with Valor, just from a standpoint of you guys had a real bubble like the NBA had in the United States. Um, so you guys were in the hotel for what was at least a month and a half. Um, so what was that like? And how, how do you think this, this, I guess we can call it a season. How, how'd that go for you guys? Yeah, well, the league done fantastically well to get it up and running. Um, and the hotel were brilliant, you know, and, and every team in the, in the hotel, a lot of respect between each other just to get it, get it going and went by the protocols. Um, but again, it, it seemed like a, a little, it seemed like a miniature preseason tournament. Um, you know, where we had what seven games, the teams that made the playoffs got a little bit more. Um, but again, it was you know, yourself from playing it, usually you have six games in pre season to get yourself fit. Um, so the likes of me, an older type player, it will take I, I need those minutes, uh, to, to really get up to speed. So, and then again, if a player get injured in the first game, or I actually get injured two weeks before, so I was trying to get fit for the first game and then it was back-to-back games but again uh, a lot of a lot of players a lot of teams were all in the same boat and, and everyone made it happen um, but the league done fantastic the hotel were fantastic and you know you weren't allowed to leave the hotel uh, but again we had a little like a the hotel was right on the ocean so we had a little like a, a back porch type thing uh, you could go out and chill out and get a bit of fresh air and um, and then you get on the bus to go training or go to a game, and then you were back in the hotel, uh, and that's what it was every day. Uh, but yeah, they actually overachieved, in my opinion. Um, the boys thought that it's going to be very, very poorly run, very difficult to get by. But no, it was very well run, and, and thankfully we got something out of this year. What were your thoughts about, um, or what are your thoughts about what's going on now? Um, given that backdrop with, with everything in Northern Ireland with uh, the premiership and the testing or the lack thereof? Yeah, well, first and foremost, health comes before everybody. Um, you know, if you're not healthy, you, you can't do anything. Um, but again, it's good to get the games going because it's good for fans. Um, this year has proven that the, the game is nothing without the fans. Um, I've said that for years. Whenever you play... If you play a training game, um, like an inter-squad game, it's not the same as whenever you're actually playing a competitive game in front of fans, whether it's your home fans or your away fans or both. You know, so again, the, the priority is, is people's health, making sure people are okay and, and trying to stop the spread of this disease. And, and then the quicker we do that, the, the best we can get back because, you know, we've had different leagues are doing different things and, in Northern Ireland, they've, they've got a little break at the minute, but then they'll go back if they open things up. Well, it get worse again. They've got the vaccine, you know. Again, it's you have to wait on the science to see if it works and the doctors and all that stuff. And it just shows you as a as humans, we're very vulnerable, you know. And as humans, we think, oh, we're untouchable, you know, we're the most dominant force, dominant animal on the planet. And again, there's many people that just don't listen to the expert advice and. It messes everything up. But again, going back to football, it's you want to get out there, you, you want to get playing, but you have to respect the, you know, the health of everybody else. Yeah, I think there's definitely a delicate balance, like you're talking about, between trying not to get too many people infected, but also trying not to get too many people depressed with their 
being inside all day, not being able to have any entertainment. I think it's a fine balance. And I think it's tough because yeah, there's doctors and stuff, but they are not very experienced on this particular thing. So it's, it's a very tough thing to, for people to accept when they're told to stay in their homes for months on end. Um, but I'm, I'm glad though. I mean, that the Premier League has kind of kept playing and whether it be limited capacity or no capacity, depending on the region, but I think people need something. Um, and it's, it's important to have sport. I think even during like world wars, wars have been stopped because of a football game or like there was a, like soldiers were playing each other during like, was it world war one or something? Uh, so it's, Christmas day. Yeah. Christmas day, world war one. So yeah. I, I think there's the sport has a huge place in society. Um, no matter what society is going through at that time. So the thing I, I was hearing about was the testing of the players was like the big concern with the players, you know, like the players getting tested and now it seems like they're getting sorted out. So. Yeah. yeah. That's a thing. If you get tested and you know, if you're, you're positive, you can stay away from the rest of the team. Yeah. And it's always been the case of, you know, if a player gets a flu, you don't come into training. That's always been the, the case. And, yeah. you know, unluckily that's, virus is a little bit more dangerous than the flu um but again it, it, whenever you got the flu you know you've got the flu i'll recover in a week but with this sometimes you don't know you've got it and you pass it on to someone else yeah. or sometimes you do get it and you get really bad but again it's in, in terms of sport and soccer in general it, it brings people together and coming from northern ireland uh you know we've, we've got catholics with protestants and there's been you know fights and, and friction over years and the sport has always brought people together, um, brought the country together. And over my, like growing up there, like sport has been the number one thing that's to bring the people together. Mm. And I, I went through that personally, um, growing up as a kid, joining the, the Belfast team, then into the Northern, Ar Northern Ireland teams. And half the, the changing room are Catholic, half are Protestant. And you realize that, hey, unless we actually work as a team here, this is not going to work. You know, so I wish everybody could play a sport at some and it would be integrated uh, because it does bring people together. But again, as Jake said, this this coronavirus thing is no one's been in this situation before. And hopefully this is a, the last one. But the way the scientists are talking is saying this could happen again, no problem. Um, but hopefully the next time if it does happen, we're a lot more prepared for it. Let's let's move now to um, a little bit happier yep. topics. Um, obviously, there's a lot going on in the world, and we all know that, and we've all been in it for the last well, going on ten months. So um, let's kind of backtrack. Let's go to the start. Let's go back to Belfast. Let's go back to Northern Ireland, and let's. And obviously, you kind of started your first team career over in England in League One with your your first your debut was with uh, Bournemouth, right? Yeah, my, deb, my professional debut was went along to Bournemouth. Um, that, that was that was a tough game because it was straight in the big, uh, straight in the men's league. Um, but again, if you go right back to the start, um, I was playing. My dad always had me playing. Um, I was playing for a team called St Andrews, the same team Albert Watson played for. Um, I actually played on Albert's team, so I played two years up. Uh, and then, how old is that guy? How old is that guy? Jesus. He's, still yeah, he's, about, he's about 50 now, isn't he? <laughs> but again, as you, as you know, whatever genes he has, whenever he gets an injury, he's back in two days. You know, he uh, breaks yeah. his leg and he's back a week later. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, 
right back, uh, a guy called Joe Kincaid. He uh, he owned the team. He was a Glasgow Rangers scout. Um, what he done was he went to he went over to Ajax and studied Ajax how the youth development was, um, how how they were producing players, and he brought that back to Northern Ireland and set up St Andrews. And I think we I think he produced eighty six professional players in the span of fifteen years, sixteen years, something like that. You know, so we've had players like Stephen Davis, the Northern Ireland captain. Now he, he came through. Uh, Chris Brunt, you had Keith Gillespie back in the day, was at Newcastle, came through Man United. You know, so uh, there's so many to name. Um, but again, Joe scouted me. I was playing for the Boys Brigade in Belfast and I was only seven. He asked me to come up to play for the under nines team and that's when I started playing uh, with Albert's team. Uh, and then went on, I was went over to Glasgow Rangers since I was 10 years of age. I actually signed a contract when I was 11 that once I turned 16, I have the option to sign with the youth team, um, which was my option. Um, and at that time, I had the Man United scout, Arsenal scout, Newcastle, like every club in England, you, you name it, they, they wanted me to go over. And, you know, I'm a Manchester United fan and a Glasgow Rangers fan, and I was happy with Rangers. Flying over every two weeks, didn't want to leave, wanted to stay there forever. Uh, but then whenever I turned 16, uh, well, whenever I turned 15, Rangers had all the Dutch people in. They had a head coach called Dick Alpacat at the time. And the whole youth system was just filled with Dutch players. You know, so I had some friends who were actually in the, in the Rangers team. And I was flying over with Stephen Davis, Chris Brunt, um, Stephen Davis ended up going to Aston Villa. He was a few years older than me. Chris Brunt was a few years older. He ended up going to Middlesbrough. Uh, and then I ended up going over to Portsmouth and signing with Portsmouth. So that's where it started at the very beginning. And um, once I, I finished school at 16 and a month later, I was on a plane with one suitcase, moved to Portsmouth. And that was me straight in the preseason. Just real quick, that's it interrupt you, but it, it just—it's funny there because I, I was looking at an article where you mentioned some of this before, and it, it just seems like it's funny how Stephen Davis sort of like keeps finding his way back to Rangers. Yeah, <laughs> what a player! He's one of the best players we've ever produced in Northern Ireland, you know. And Jake—he's a—he's a size of you, like he's not big, and you know to play centre midfield, if you're small, you have to be very good. Um, and Stephen, I remember going over with him and watching some of his training sessions and he was he was class you know he but the boys can get the ball off him rangers were doing everything to sign him and he ended up going to aston villa um but again he was he was tremendous he went down to southampton aston villa southampton um ended up at rangers and he's what he's 35 36 now same age as albert uh, i think he might be a year older than albert actually but you know, you see some of the games this year, and he's been fantastic. He's playing the, the deep line midfielder role, getting on the ball, and you know, and even for Northern Ireland as well, he, he's broke the the caps record, captain, just Mister Reliable. And for every for every kid in Northern Ireland to to have seen Stephen Davis do what he's done and how he's represented himself, the country, the clubs he's played for, you know, it's it's just remarkable. Yeah. What was that like for you as, as an American kid? It's a very different experience. When you turn 16, you're still in high school, unless you're a 
top, I mean, I guess in, in comparison, you were a top, top player at that level in Northern Ireland, but you go over at 16, you're on your own. You said you pack one suitcase and you just, you kind of have to figure out life for yourself. Um, so how did that help you both as a player and then as, as a kid, just growing up and becoming a man? Oh, you, you grew up so fast. I remember actually my first training session, the, we landed, I went over with uh, a boy called Mark Wilson. He played for Republic of Ireland. Um, he was at Bournemouth, uh, Stoke City, a couple of other teams. But we lived together in the same room. As soon as we, as soon as we get in the room, we were unpacking our suitcase. Many buses outside for training. We're like, it's half four in the afternoon. You know, put on your training kit. Actually, the only training kit I had was my Glasgow Rangers training kit. And Mark, Mark was a Celtic fan, so he put on a Celtic shirt. Oh. Two, of the, two of us were in, uh, down on the beach, and it was old school preseason, running on the sand up and down the beach, you know, like army type training. Uh, and that was it for six weeks, double sessions every day. D- don't remember much apart from just running and sleeping. And honestly, like that was, it just hit me straight up the face. Like if, if this is what it takes to be a professional footballer at this level, because the training was so demanding uh, at 16 years of age, and I was never exposed to that in Northern Ireland. Um, but again, you grew up even simple things like setting up a bank account. Um, you, you, you're at, you just lived off your mom and dad. All of a sudden you start getting paid. You got to go to the bank yourself. You got to go buy food yourself. And you don't have your mom to do your washing, to do your, your earning. Uh, we were in digs at the time, you know, so the, 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 the guy and girl that we live with, they would have done your washing and stuff, but sometimes they didn't get round to it. And you had, you had to just basically work it out yourself. But, you know, the first six months was very tough. You know, weekends after a game on a Saturday, you go back to your room. Um, all the boys go home to their homes because they, they were all local. And there was me, Mark, and Asmir Begovic, the three foreign boys. And we would try and keep ourselves entertained. You know, you're 16, you, you can't go out to bars or anything. Um, again, but you grew up so fast. And again, in America, like, there's still, like, it's, it's still, I still can't understand it whenever they say, oh, a 22-year-old, he's young, he's just breaking through. And, like, whenever I was 22-year-old, I'd already won the Irish League, I'd already won the Cups. And, like, I was in men's football, playing, winning stuff, getting kicked all over the place. Wasn't getting babied. I had my own apartment at that stage. And then whenever I actually came to Edmonton and I started to realize, oh, these kids are coming out of college and they're 22. I'm like, no, these, these kids are men. They're 22. They should be up and running by this stage. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's completely different. And I guess that's why, you know, in Europe, they produce a lot more, a lot more qual- quantity of professional players. Um, because at 16, I was like exposed to full-time training every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, Jake, your, your experience would have been a, a little bit different being in college. Yeah, like I've just touched on it quick. I would not have had full year, full-time training until I was 22 or 23, like you're saying. Even in college, you're full-time for those three months in the fall season. But then for the rest, there's limitations with the NCAA, like how much you can train, how much gym work you can do. So it's, just, it's completely different and it's completely against development. It's, it's NCA rules and you have to follow them, but it's just such a different experience over in Europe. And yeah, like, like you so, say, that's... When, whenever I was there, we still had to go to college. 
you know, so while during that full-time training, we were in, I went to Portsmouth College, you know, so we were, we were going to college also, but the priority was, was the football side, you know, and there's some days we had a hard training, then the minibus would have took us to college and we were there and say 12.30 to five, or if we had a, in the morning time, we might have had college in the morning and then the minibus would pick us up and we were at the training ground for 12.30. And we were on the training pitch for one, you know, then we had a, a two hour, two and a half hour session, you know, so it was very, very demanding. Um, but again, it made me grow up so fast and, uh, and basically you become an adult and you're very independent by the age of 17. Um, and you get treated like an adult and you have to act like an adult, you know, and at 17, You'd say, oh, he's, he's just a kid, a lot of development, but that's what they done. They, they pushed you to your limit. Uh, and that's that was with a Premier League club. And I know it, a lot changes, a lot has changed from now until then. And the game has changed a little bit differently as well. But again, from 16 to 17, I was full-time training, gym sessions, uh, college. You know, your full day was based around you as an individual to get better. Um, and that's all it was down to. You, you talk a little bit about um, then you you know you made your debut with Born uh, Bournemouth and then had you know just talk a little bit about that time and then ultimately you ended up going back to Northern Ireland and playing in the Premier League over there. Yeah, um, well, I was I was in the Portsmouth first team squad at the time, training every day with them, um, and Harry Redknapp. Was walk, just walking off a training pitch, and he, he comes over to me and says, "Look, I'm I'm gonna have to get you out and loan." Um, I was like, "Okay." So I had a reserve game the next day, and uh, uh, back then you would put your boots into a big metal bin, and then the kit man would bring it to the stadium for you. I think we might have been away to Aston Villa reserves or something like that. So my boots were packed, and he actually. Uh, I got a phone call from the agent saying, Look, you're going alone to Bournemouth. I'm like, I've got a game tonight. He says, no, you need to go to Bournemouth. You've got a game tomorrow for the first team. I'm like, what do you mean? He says, get there today. You need to train today. They've got an afternoon session. Get there today. Because uh, Bournemouth's an hour away from Portsmouth. He says, get there today, train, and then you're playing tomorrow against Oldham at home. So my boots were packed already. And I'm like, where are they? Kit man had left. He was he was away up to Birmingham with my boots. So I actually went in and uh, there was a, luckily I had an old pair sitting there, old pair of Preds, like last year's ones. And I said, oh, I'm just going to have to take these. So I actually went down to Bournemouth, played the game. I remember coming off the pitch with like two dead legs or what do you call them here? Charlie horses? Charlie horse, dead leg, yeah. Honestly, like I was 19 at the time and just proper men and I was playing as a striker you know an old school league one like Albert but twice the size of Albert and they were just getting getting into the back of me every time every muscle was dead uh, and the next day I remember turning up for a cool down session and the cool down session consisted of it was like a small swimming pool you had to do 64 lengths and then you get out you get out of the pool you put your training kit on and we were doing deadlifts and strength work and I couldn't understand, like, this is a, 
you know, this is a cooldown session, and we had a game on the Tuesday. This was a Sunday. Were you preparing uh, for the triathlon? Or? <laughs> honestly, I, I was like, like things. Our training was a little bit more different in, obviously, in a Premier League team. In League One, it was, it was like the army they were training, and the the boys were just huge, like every player down there was massive. Um, but I played three games, I think it was, and then after a third one, I ended up getting injured. Um, and I think it was down to the obviously the training that we were doing. I wasn't as a nineteen year old, I wasn't conditioned to that type of old school training, doing heavy lifting after a game. I'm not sure if teams still do that now. I, I doubt it. Um, because ours was a little bit more structured at Portsmouth. Um, but yeah, I ended up going back to Portsmouth. Uh, and then I was there for another year and then ended up coming back to Northern Ireland. Um, but again, when it, the following year, Harry Redknapp left, we brought in Alan Perem, a French manager. Um, and it was actually to play the last two games of the season against West Brom and Wigan in the Premier League. Uh, so the first team stayed up. They were safe. They couldn't get relegated. And he called the reserve manager, brought me over and says, You're, what position do you play? I'm like, uh, attacking midfielder. He says, okay, tomorrow we'll play 4-4-1-1. You playing like, as a number 10, basically. I'm like, oh, great. 30 minutes into the training session, uh, one of the first team player, players follows through, catches me in the ankle, twists me ankle, out for six weeks, calls over another boy, uh, or striker. He plays the next two games. Ellsborg in uh, Sweden end up signing him for 350 grand, 350,000 euros signing on fee after tax. Because uh, a year later, he went to Ellsborg and they drew Linfield in the Champions League qualifiers. So I actually met him in Belfast. And, and I, he, show, he, show, he actually showed me his bank account. And I'm like, are you joking me? <laughs> uh, but again, that's, that was the fine lines. Um, like for me, football, obviously you get paid money for it. But for me, it's about winning things. Um, but then after that, I, I actually went to Stoke on loan. Or not on loan, on trial. And Tony Poulos was the manager. And he says, look, if we get promoted, I'm not going to sign you. But if we don't get promoted, I will sign you. They were in the championship. He says, because if I get promoted, like the club gets 80 million pounds. I get to buy players whoever I want. I'm like, fair enough. And then no my luck, Stoke end up winning the league, I think, and getting promoted in the last four weeks. Uh, but then pre-season, I went to Luton Town. They were in League One. Kevin Blackwell was the manager. He brings me, I go over, fly over to Luton, train for a week, do excellent. Following week, go to Cyprus with him. Uh, on the way home in the plane, Kevin Blackwell's like, I want to give you a two-year contract. I was like, awesome. Means I go into League One, I can develop, move my way up the leagues again. Because by then I was like, I was very fit, very strong. I was 20 at that stage. Um, put a lot of work in from the year before. And then the next day I turned up, we had a, we had a game against someone and was actually playing centre midfield with Don Hutchison. Don't know if you remember Don Hutchison. Yep. Um, and then after the game, Kevin Blackwell comes over and says, look, the club's getting the administration today. I'm leaving. Uh, I want to wish you all the best. You know, and then I get back to the hotel. It's on Sky Sports News, Lutner administration. Had to pay my own flights back to Belfast. 
and the season was starting and the season was a start starting in like two weeks time or something I'm like I haven't got a club so then Glenn Torn manager calls me Alan McDonald one of the best managers I've ever had um, he was my under 21's assistant manager in Northern Ireland he calls me and says look do you want to come to Glenn Torn and I grew up supporting Linfield and Linfield and Glenn Torn you know they hate each other I says look Alan I I can't sign for Glen Torn. You know, I grew up supporting Linfield and it doesn't really appeal to me. And he, I, uh, I sp- actually spoke to Linfield and David Jeffrey says, look, I've got Glenn Ferguson and Peter Thompson, you know, as strikers. I've got Jimmy Mulgrew, Michael Gall, Paul McAreevy as centre midfielders. You know, they're possibly the top five players in the league. He says, Glenn Ferguson will probably retire in a few years. McAreevy too, you know, so I'll look at you in a couple of years. So Limfy wasn't an option. I spoke to Portadown, Balamina, Newry, and at then a couple of teams were throwing money, like they'll write a check to you here or give you cash, you know, like a signing on fee. Yeah. Uh, and then I spoke to a player that played for Balamina and I asked him for advice. He played in the under 21s and he just says, look, these are the options you have. If, if you want to go for money, sign for this team. If you want to try and win something, I mean, you got to sign for Glen Torn because Glen Torn are closest to Linfield. Yeah. Uh, so I went home to my dad and says, look, my dad's a big Linfield supporter and we live in an area that's all Linfield supporters. All my friends are Linfield supporters. I said to my dad, look, I want to win trophies as a player and Glen Torn is obviously the best club to go to. Plus Alan McDonald, he was my under 21's assistant coach and he's just an, an awesome, awesome person. And I ended up going over to Glen Torn and signing for Glen Torn. And as soon as I signed, the back of the newspaper was Blue Man signed for Glen Torn. So <laughs> there and then I was there and then I was playing catch up at the club. But I never regret it one bit. Absolutely loved my time at Glen Torn. You know, did the, you get uh, a lot of pushback when you signed with them from from people in the neighborhood, from family? Yeah, you know, but uh, my friends absolutely tortured me. Uh, Linfield actually won the league that year beat us by three points I think and I remember that night two o'clock in the morning there must have been about 25 people outside my, my apartment just singing Linfield songs oh. and my wife had work the next day and we're like well, what do we do here but it was all, it was all good banter um, like the, the, the area that I come from they all respect each other and and then again, the following year, we won the league. I won the league with Glen Torn. Um, and again, not everyone was congratulating me. And they actually called around to see my medal and stuff. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was awesome. And then again, uh, I was there four years. We won the league, won the League Cup, won the County Anthem Shield twice. Got to the final of the Santanta Cup. Uh, that was the All-Ireland. Um, which, you know, we weren't actually supposed to go very far mm-hmm. uh, we beat some pats on the way um, they had Keith Fahey playing centre midfield who's what a tremendous player yeah. and I rem- player. Yeah, yeah I remember we beat them we beat them 1-0 at the Oval and I actually scored the goal mm-hmm. and after the game their, their coach John McDonald at the time he says look I want to sign you and then the game is on the Friday and the Monday I get a phone call from our chairman yeah I want to give you a new contract I'm like, yeah, because some Pats want me. And he was like, they have tapped you up. I says, no, no, it was in the paper. And he was like, what paper? You know, so 
I, because St. Pat's wanted me, I was able to negotiate a very good contract with Glenn Ford. Very. The game we, got, we got to the final. We had to actually go to Cork and play Cork in, in the final in Cork. Um, they beat us 2-1. But again, it was tremendous. And then after four years, I was at Glen Torn. And it was actually my last year there, uh, the change coach, Scott Young, became the coach. Um, I was thrown on the transfer list. The top five earners were on the transfer list. So getting that good contract actually came back and bit me in the backside because it threw me on the transfer list. But again, back in Europe, uh, the contracts, the players are protected. You know, it's if you have signed, if the clubs give you a contract, you're protected. They have to yeah. obey by what they've gave you. Whereas in North America, they'll they'll move the goalposts and they'll be sneaking writing in the contracts. Jake's laughing. <laughs> he knows all about it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, that's what it was. And real quick, Daryl, just before we go further now. So going from England to Northern Ireland, the training and the setup in England, and then compare that to where you went into Glen Torrin in Northern Ireland and how that affected you as a player. Wow. So coming back from England, you know, after training, you get your lunch, pick what you want. It's a buffet. You go home, you sleep. Um, you wake up at night, play with a PlayStation, go for something to eat and do that every day. So you're, you're actually, the clubs have to really treat you like, like they need to really take care of you because they're investing a lot of money into you. Then you go back to Northern Ireland and then uh, most of it was part-time. So you train in the evening. Glen Tormey trained Monday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, played on a Saturday. That was mainly the, the league. But again, you went in and I'm like, oh, this is going to be easy. And then you realize that there's so many quality players in the league and a lot of dirty, tough players that don't give you a second on the wall. So again, you have to roll your sleeves up and get stuck in um, first and foremost. And then you, your play, if, if you're quality enough, that will come out in the second half. You know, because I remember the first training session with Glenn Torn, I just signed. I'm like, okay, this is going to be easy. And there was a player, Gary Hamilton. He's a Glen Abbott manager, and he's one of the best players I've ever played with. He was our number 10. I came in as like a number eight. And I couldn't get the ball off him in training. I was expecting just to go in and take it off him. I couldn't get, a, get it off him, and he was not making players. He's back healing through balls. And then I realized that he was at Blackburn Rovers, um, like he, I don't know if he still holds it, but he, he had the most goals in the like the reserve league in England with Blackburn Rovers, and he ended up coming back to Northern Ireland. And there was a lot of players like that throughout the league, which I wasn't aware of. Players that went over to England to Scotland, and then they found their way back. So there was a lot of quality. Um, and again, training in the evening, and then during the day, I found myself bored. And so I asked the players, what do you guys do during the day? And they were like, oh, we work. We've got a job. <laughs> so I went to the head coach and says, look, I thought I have a professional contract. He was like, yeah, you do. But if you're bored during the day, go and get a job. So I ended up, I ended up applying because we went to college in, in Portsmouth as well. I was a qualified fitness instructor and I had my fitness qualifications. Um, so I applied for a job in 
Uh, it was called JJB Sports in the gym. Um, and they gave me the job. So I had to be up at 5.30 in the morning. And I, I never, I wasn't even up after, I guess the earliest I was up was 7.30 in my life since then. And I had to get up at 5.30 and my alarm went at 5.30 the first day. And I just knocked it off and went back to sleep and didn't turn up for the job. <laughs> so that was my first, that was supposed to be my first job. And I'm like, there's no way I can get up that early. And then I go training it that night. So I, I went to another gym because I couldn't go to that gym, turn up and, and they're like, you're supposed to work here. Why didn't you come? So I joined another gym and I got to know this guy, still a good friend of mine, a guy called Eddie Marcus. And he was a, a manager in the, it was a leisure center. And he actually said to me, why don't you, I can put you through your lifeguard qualification. And he says, there's a footballer shift. He, he actually says, I have a footballer shift here. You start at seven in the morning and you finish at 12.15 in the afternoon. It means you can go to the gym after. You get your gym free, go home, have a bite to eat, have a nap and then train at night and then come back the next morning. I'm like, perfect. So Eddie put me through my lifeguard and I became a lifeguard. And I was doing that for, I was a lifeguard for five, five years, I think. Um, working seven in the morning to 12.15 uh, actually walked home. It wasn't far from my house. I actually walked home and then trained in the evening and that's that was my life. <laughs> but but Daryl, the, the thing that comes to my mind is like, so you're, play, you're, you know, were you the same player in Northern Ireland that you were in England when you were trained? And also, like, how are you supposed to get back to England or Scotland or whatever when you're in Northern Ireland and you're not, you know, did it affect your form? Yeah, it did. Um, the first... The first six months, it never, because I continue to be like a, I continue to train like a professional. You know, I'd done morning sessions myself, whether it was in the gym or out on the pitch. And then I was training in the evening. So I was doing double sessions a lot of times myself. But then gradually I found myself getting a little bit bored during the day, training on my own, no teams to train with. You know, so then naturally I started to go, down a little bit and then that's whenever I got the job I'm like hey I can get I can make more money and I can do the gym after but then my training in terms of uh, my intensity of training slowly went down slightly and what happened was I'm like okay I'll just do the gym today because I'm a little bit tired after work and then some days it was like you know what I'll, I'll give the gym a miss today and then it sort of went down slightly I was still a very good player mind you in the league and I was doing very well for Glen Torn. And I think the first year I scored 17 goals. Mm. But then the next year I scored 11. Then the year after I only scored five. Uh, I was only I was playing right midfield though when I scored five for most of the year. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth year at Glen Torn, they, I was on the transfer list. And again, they were trying to get rid of me. Lymphy wanted me, but it would have meant I had to take like half my salary pay cut. And I had a mortgage at the time. I says, look, I can't just do it. You know, I have to really prove myself in order to get a better contract, whether it's with Linfield or someone else, like the following year. And in pre-season, because I was on the transfer list, they were actually making me run extra. Uh, I was actually, if we were playing a game of possession, I was always in the defensive team. So I, I had to do a lot of this fitness stuff two kilometer runs and and I was one of the fittest in the team 
But what what had actually done was, I guess the coaches, like I, I still speak to the coaches at this day and I've still got a very good relationship with both of them, but they made me do a little bit more, you know, maybe after I had to do shuttle runs, um, a load of push-ups, sit-ups. But even after that, I would have went to the gym and put in the work. But what that actually done was sort of the, the punishment type running that they were making me do to try and say, you know what, I don't want to be here no more. Let's, let's take a pay cut and go somewhere else, which is what the coaches wanted. What that actually done was, and because I put the effort in, it actually got me back to a standard that I was in in England because of the, the training that they were putting me through. So till this day, like that was probably the best thing that happened to me because I turned up for the first, we had the first game of the season. I was on the transfer list. I, was, I wasn't playing any preseason games, but because they didn't play me any preseason game, maybe 10 minutes off the bench. But I was very, very fit. I was very sharp. Uh, my core was very strong. And I was going to the gym and getting stronger. And the first game of the season came and our two strikers get injured. Gary Hamilton, he was one, one of the best players in the league, if not the best. He was injured. Um, who else? Matty Burrows. Matty Burrows ended up scoring one of the FIFA goals of the year. He was up for FIFA goal of the year one time. He was injured. And we had one, one other striker. And the coach says, no, I want to play him right wing. So I says to the assistant manager, look, I can play. We were playing 4-3-3. I says, look, I can play as a number nine. I played there for the under-19s in Northern Ireland, scored a few goals. He says, okay, I'll speak to the manager. The manager's like, no chance. So first game of the season came. There was no other options to play a striker. So I went to the manager the day before the game. Uh, he actually had us in the day before the game training. I says, look, put me up front. I'll do a job for you until the other two boys are back fit. So he threw me up front. First game of the season, we won 6-1 and I scored five. <laughs> and, and I came in after. The, I came in after. And all the boys were like just shaking their head in disbelief. But my mindset at that time was, who have we got next? I'll take anyone on. Because the training that they put me through without them knowing it made me as fit, as sharp as I possibly could have been at that stage. And then the next game I scored, the game after I scored, I think I had like nine, nine goals in the first four games or something like that. Um, and after that game, the chairman, he comes to me and says, look, uh, I'm going to take you off the, I'm going to take you off the transfer list. <laughs> uh, but you have to take a pay cut. I'm like, you do realize I just scored five goals today. Um, you know, and, and again, that just changed everything. But what that actually done was uh, it put me in the shot window and I had teams from Scotland looking at me. I had teams from England looking at me. But I was never a number nine. I was a false nine. And teams didn't play with false nines then. Teams wanted a number nine who was fast, runs in behind, or who was big and strong. And I was I always see myself as an attacking midfielder, a 10 or an 8. And then... Halfway through that season, well, not halfway through, I think it was five games in, uh, our two strikers came back and our centre midfielder, uh, we let one of them go. And our two other centre midfielders, one done his cruciate ligament and one done his medial ligament. So I went back in the midfield for the rest of the year. Um, and again, I actually scored against 
I think it was Rangers in pre-season a week after that. We, we beat Rangers reserves 2-1. You know, so I actually had Rangers looking at me, um, but they were looking at me as a number nine, but I didn't fit the profile of what a number nine they wanted, is what teams wanted back then. Mm. You know, like a DDA Drogba type number nine. Mm. Um, someone like that. Uh, Lukaku type. That's what they all wanted back then. Um, Jake would know because Colin... Uh, always wanted a striker like that. That's why I brought in Frank and Tommy. Yeah. Um, you know, and and they looked at me as that striker. But deep down, I knew I'm not that striker. I'm a false nine at the most. And if not, then I'm a ten or an eight. Because uh, luckily, I ha- I'm a good finisher. So anything around the box, like I'll get close to scoring. And that's where I usually like my stats. will see, oh, there's goals here, and they come on one and out and out number nine but that's not what I was um, but what that done was at the end of the year um, the goals were all on video you know and, and then at the end of that year Linfield came in uh, Puerto Rico Islanders actually came in for me Colin Clark was the head coach and mm-hmm. um, Colin was actually in Northern Ireland at the time and Colin just so happened to be good friends with my agent who's from Portsmouth so the two of them were in Belfast discussing a contract with me and I spoke to Glenn Torr and I says, look, Puerto Rico want me. And they were like, no, we're not letting you go. I says, look, my contract's out at the end of the year. Linfield want me. Puerto Rico want me. You know, you'd rather have me go to Puerto Rico than Linfield. Uh, and he says, no, we want to keep you. I says, well, I'm not taking a pay cut to stay here because how I was treated. Uh, and I was going to go to Puerto Rico. Um, and then after putting in a little bit of research and my wife would have had to go with me and seeing how the medical side was mm. completely different uh, I'm like you know this is not going to work uh, had, had I been single no problem um, but then at the fall at the end of that year I ended up signing for Linfield um, and that, that was a big controversy in the city you would you would have been a tomato if you went to Puerto Rico I don't know if that would have been best for your complexion oh my goodness I wouldn't have been able I wouldn't have been through 20 minutes <laughs> Before we jump into the Linfield, could you just I look back and I saw that uh, one of your seasons with Glen Torrey, you played with Keith Gillespie. Yeah. Could you just touch on that so, a little bit, if you don't mind? Yeah, Keith came in. Um, obviously, he was at the end of his, towards the end of his career. Um, what a fantastic person. Still speak to him till this day. Um, you know, Keith obviously went through a lot of tough things in his life and gambling and stuff. He wrote a book about it. But again, you know, the knowledge that, that you got from Keith, uh, it was tremendous. We would do, you know, phases of the player, some team shape before games and someone would make a pass and he would run over and grab the ball and say, look, don't make that pass. Miss him out and play it straight to this guy. And you, you're, you're the third man. You get it off this one. So he actually brought a, a little bit of a better dimension mm-hmm. to our team at Glenthorne. Um, you know, and obviously he was at the end of his career, so we didn't get to play with the real Keith Gillespie, so to speak. But again, the the experience, the knowledge that he brought in, what he knew in the game, playing at such a high level, just to give it to players like me as a younger player, to some of our other younger players, you know, it was to add to our game. It was incredible, you know, and Keith was fantastic on a night out as well. You, you know, have, have a bit of crack until it's home time. 
and then just <laughs> just go home. <laughs> but yeah, Keith was brilliant. So what was that after spending this time at Glentoran and your just probably the most prolific period of your career in terms of goals, right? I would, I would imagine. And and you, you've had that time as a number nine. And and for me, I think kind of when we played together, watching your small side games, I think you could have fit in like the Harry Kane role, the way he does at Spurs now, uh, just the way he kind of comes up underneath and then Son and whoever else make runs in behind. I think yeah. that would have been perfect for you. Uh, as as playing as a striker, as a number nine, you could have gotten a lot of goals. But then, so you're with uh, you're with the Guntoran, you have a lot of success, and then now the move comes about to go to Linfield, and it's your hometown or your boyhood club, I guess. Your your father's probably a lot happier. Um, <laughs> but uh, what what was that like? I mean, obviously you had a lot of success at Linfield. Well, you guys won the the double. Was it your first yeah. year there? So what was yeah. that experience like at Linfield? Uh, it was incredible. You know, boyhood club. Um, I was a season ticket holder. I went to all the home games, a lot of away games, since since I was very very young. Um, in and out of Windsor Park my whole life. Um, Getting up to watch Northern Ar- Northern Ireland there, watching Linfield every week, and I always wanted to play for Linfield if I never made it um, across the water in England or Scotland. And David Jeffrey, uh, again going across the city, and it was a it was controversial. Um, I remember the day I went, signed it. Um, the next day it was in the paper. I actually went up to Starbucks for a, a coffee and a couple of Glen Thorne fans actually surrounded me, giving me a little bit of abuse. And, that, and, that, and that's the way Belfast was. Um, but again, we went up there and uh, like the Limfield's squad depth was far superior than Glen Thorne's. Um, so I had to fight for a place. Um, Linfield had won the league. I think it was the past, past the, the year before. Um, and again, I remember pre-season. It was very, very difficult under David Jeffrey. And a lot of it was to do with mental strength. Uh, you know, he's the most successful manager. And I think he's the most successful manager in Britain, probably. Uh, and all of Ireland, the, the things that he's won. But... The respect that David Jeffrey gave to his players, to his staff, not just the staff, but the cleaners that would come into the stadium. Everybody were treated with full respect and you felt valued, you felt wanted. And it didn't matter if you were a under nine player or an experienced first team player, everybody felt the love from, I guess, the chief of staff, so to speak, uh, the boss. And that just went throughout the whole club. So it was completely different going from Glen Torn to Linfield. And that's not to put anything down on Glen Torn. It was just a little bit more, you know, just there, I guess. Like under Alex Ferguson would be under Manchester United. Mm-hmm. They, they were always there. They never fell away. And it was drilled into you from the first day you went in. And I remember me and Albert signed at the same time. First day we went in, there was uh, three Linfield shirts to be signed. All the players signed it. Albert signed it between the crest and the, the Umbro sign, like right in the middle. And David Jeffrey comes in and he goes, who signed it there? Whose signature is that? And someone goes, that's Albert's. And he, he absolutely goes through Albert and Albert's sort of laughing, thinking it's a joke. And he went, this is not a joke. I went right through Albert, like first day. And we were like, what's going on here? 
and he put the law down. He says, I sign there, no one else signs there. And that was it. You knew you don't sign there. Nobody signs there. The manager signs there. But again, he, David Jeffrey had that ability that if you're playing a game, all he had to do was shout your name and you knew what to do from that moment. So if you were if you were playing for us, Jake, if if you weren't at it or you were making a few mistakes, he would just shout, Jake! And right there and then, like he would do it to me and he'd do it to Albert, all the other players. Right there and then, you get flashbacks from the training the day before. Oh, right, this is how we need to play this. This is what I need to do. And it was like a kick up the backside and you went on and played well or played better than what you were doing. Um, but again, we won the... We won the uh, double that season, um, which was brilliant. You know, I remember we won the league and the boys were like, get the beers out. But we had a cup final a week later and the manager was like, uh, have a beer, but that's it. You go home, you rest up, you win the cup final next week and then you can then you can have a beer. Uh, and that's what it was. It was so, it was so intense. Like there was no days off in terms of mental. You had to be switched on at all times. You found yourself on the bench. Um, but was it at the level you were in when you were in England, though? Were you still training? Like, was there an opportunity to get back over there if you wanted to? Um, we were still training in the evening, so it wasn't really full-time. I think this year, Linfield are going to go full-time, like the whole club is going to go full-time. But again, you're training in the evening. And the thing with Northern Ireland is it's so difficult to get out of the league because just the style of play was back then, it was very difficult to shine week in, week out. You know, it was just very difficult. If you had a great week, you know, I remember Glenn Torna scored five and a week later, we played Coleraine. I had one shot and I, I managed to score. It was a volley off the barn in from 25 yards. Apart from that, I, I didn't get a sniff the whole game. So if you were the danger man, there was two players on you and one of them kicked you and the other one waited to kick you straight after. So it was very difficult to get out of the league. Now the league has improved dramatically in terms of tactics, possession, style of play. Um, and that's all down to do with obviously the Irish FA um, making a lot better coaches. The coach education in the FA, it's tremendous now. So there's a lot better coaches that's implemented it into the gameplay. Uh, and again, if you watch Albert's team, Lauren, like they play some fantastic football, uh, the modern football in Linfield would be the same. But yeah, it was like going to Linfield, it was, it was a lot more intense. Um, and again, I actually put myself a lot more pressure because that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to win stuff. But the respect for every single player, it was, we, we basically had two players for each position. And those two players were just as good as each other. Um, and again, like uh, the memories are awesome, but we won the double and it was, for me, it was a boyhood dream because I celebrated Lymphy winning the league in cups as a kid in the stands, uh, on, running onto the pitch, you know, running past the stewards to get on the pitch to see the players. Um, it, was a, it was fantastic. And like now sitting here as a 34 year old, I want to win something before I retire because the feeling that you get is unbelievable. It's nothing like it in football. You can, you can get a nice contract or you can score a goal. You can score a last minute goal, but nothing feels like after a game of winning a trophy and you're in the changing room 
looking around the boys and they're like, wow, we actually did it. So then you were off to Edmonton and you know, Edmonton came in and um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? And, and obviously they came in for both you and Albert. So you guys are intertwined yet again. Yeah. Uh, so it was actually, we won the, we won the double with Linfield. Me and my wife went off to Grand Canaria. We got married. Um, first of June, we were land in Grand Canaria the day after the wedding. And my wife says, can you play football somewhere else? I'm like, what do you mean? You're not like Linfield. I've just won the double. This is like, I'm on a high. This is unbelievable. I want to win double again a year later. I want to get better and better. Um, and she's like, no, I mean at the other side of the world. I says, okay, I'll look into it. Um, so I sort of done it, started to do a little bit of research because Puerto Rico again, that came up um, and I started <coughs> looking into it. I remember looking at San Antonio, um, looking at the, actually looking at the NSL because it was just new. And it was about half, it wasn't even, it was October time, I'd guess. And I was on the bench for most of the time. But I was actually, the team, we weren't doing too well that year. Um, we were still good, but we were sort of, I guess, a little bit arrogant. You know, we just thinking, no, oh, this is easy because the competition didn't seem as strong as it did the year before. Uh, but Cliftonville were much, much better, um, which caught us off guard a little bit, you know, so... Um, I was actually on the bench for a lot of that year and I wasn't happy being on the bench and I remember coming off the bench uh, scoring an equaliser we drew 1-1 the next game come off the bench scored again coming off the bench left midfield playing left midfield and I was just like coming inside and shooting with my right foot or bringing it onto my left and shooting I think it was three games in a row I scored coming off the bench and I went to the manager and says look any chance of me starting here? We're not doing too well. We're drawing these games. I've actually scored in the last three games. And he was like, yeah, I'm trying to get you in. And and I just, at that point, I don't know what it was, but I wasn't happy with how things were going. And then we were actually 2-0 down against, we're 2-0 down away to Glenavon. And Albert scored to make a 2-1. And he brought me on. And... I scored two and we won three two. So I went in after the game and I spoke to the manager manager. I says, Look, surely I'm starting the next game. I have to start. And he, he was like, Yeah, you'll be starting the next game. And the next game came and I remember in the changing room. We didn't know the team until the day before or until that day. And he would just flip up the flip chart and we'd always played a four four two. And if your name was on it, you, you were starting. That's that's when you knew you started. Uh, like we would have squad, maybe a squad game on the Thursday night but that was never the team that he was intending to play and they flipped up the flip chart and I just remember looking at it and I was on the bench and I seen the boys look like all the boys were just looking at me as if to say what's going on here what have you done like, have you done something wrong and at that point like I was very low because my hard work wasn't paying off and I was actually training hard and and then that's whenever I went you know what how do I how do I get a move abroad my wife wants to move now's it now's the time and that's whenever I looked into it I realized I found out that to get into it, it could have been Australia 
New Zealand, America, Canada. I wasn't even looking at Canada. I was looking into America. And I played with Johnny Steele back in the day. Um, obviously, Johnny played with Miami and a couple of other teams. And I contacted him and said, look, how do I go about it? He says, first and foremost, you need a highlight reel. You need to make a highlight video because that's what they do here. Mm. Back in Ireland, there's no highlight videos. You don't... Yeah. If you make a highlight video, you're seen as, oh, he loves himself. Yeah. He's a big time Charlie. <laughs> yeah. That's how people looked at it. Yeah. And luckily, the goals that I scored from you know the previous year and the year at Glenthorne, and at Glenthorne, I scored some fantastic goals that year. They were all on the BBC website. And I was managed to pull them down and make a highlight video. And that's whenever I was like, uh, uh, I had a phone call with Asmir Begovic. I used to live with him in Portsmouth. And I said, look, Asmir, uh, are you still, is Will still your agent? Because he was a guy called Will was worked for IMG. He was both our agents. Um, or he was our agent for both of us. I says, can Will, I'm looking to get a move across to America. And he grew up in Edmonton. And he says, look, I'll speak to Edmonton. They've got a team. Um, send me your video. And I sent him it, sent it to Edmonton. The guy watched it, phoned me. Um, guy called Joe Petroni. He phones me. says, yes, um, you look awesome. They just hired Colin Miller. Colin's from Scotland. It gave, Col- it gave Colin a, a chance, I guess, um, an excuse for Edmonton to pay for a scouting trip over to Northern Ireland. He actually went and seen family in Scotland. And Colin actually, <laughs> Colin flies over, watches me for Linfield. Um, and it just so has happened that I was actually injured for two weeks and I was coming back from injury. And I was expecting to play. Me and Albert were actually injured at the same time. I was actually expecting to play for the first team that week. And it was away to Balna Mallard, which is two and a half hour drive away, which is long back there it's like oh no it's a nightmare this trip but if you live in America it's like oh it's down the road it's easy but again uh, I I spoke to Colin I says look Colin I'm just coming back from injury I'm actually playing for the reserves this week but the good thing is it's in Belfast and you don't have to drive to Balna Mallard because he would have flown from Glasgow to Belfast and he would have had to drive two and a half three hours to a game and it was freezing you know this was December time I think it was freezing uh, so he came and watched a reserve game and I said to the reserve manager what formation are you playing and the reserve manager Linfield funny one of the best guys ever he says we're going to play um, a 4-3-3 but a different style I'm like right he said we're going to play three in the middle but we're going to have two strikers and a right winger we're not going to play with anyone on the left <laughs> so it was a it was a, lap, a lopsided 4-3-3. And we were like, all right, Dennis. Uh, he says, where do you want to play? I says, put me in the middle of the three. I'll play in the middle of the pitch. So I played there for the reserves. Luckily, I had a, like, a, it, the, the game was easy to me because it was a lot of younger players. And Colin came and watched it, and luckily I played well. And just to verify that I am what the video was. And I met Colin after the, in the hotel, and he just said, Obviously, I want to sign you, but you're in your contract. You'll need to get out of your contract. Then you'll have to fly to Edmonton on a trial basis just to prove it to the technical director so we can sign you. Um, he was like, okay. He says, is there any good centre-backs? And I knew Albert always wanted to move to America. So 
Albert was just back from injury, but he was with the first team that day. But he actually, he was on the bench for the first team. And that's the way it was at Linfield. If you lost your place through injury or suspension, and the guy in your season played well, you didn't get back in until he played poorly or he got injured. That, that was, it didn't matter who you were. And that's just how it was at Linfield. Because again, it was, say me and Jake, um, it was me, say we played a 4-4-2, and me and Jake were the two strikers, and you had Tommy and Frank, say to speak. Everybody were just as good as each other. And whoever was playing well at the time, that, that was you, you were selected. And that's how it was. It was based on merit. And I guess that's why Linfield were so successful because you knew if you dropped your standards slightly, you were on the bench. Mm. But again, I says, look, there's a defender. He was our player of the year last year. Um, I know he wants to go to America. Um, I doubt he even knows where Edmonton is. I says, I, I only know where Edmonton is because Asmir grew up there and he told me about it. So, uh, Tell them it's northern, northern uh, U.S. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 uh, so uh, the, the first team won 3-1, three, three I think. Easy game. Um, and said to Colin, look, fly back on Tuesday. We play Crusaders at home. So he flew, flies to Glasgow, flies back to Belfast. But on the Monday night, we have training. And one of my best friends in the team at the time, uh, I grew up with. He actually just retired the other day. A guy called David Armstrong. He was playing centre back, and he knew. I was speaking to him, and he was like, "You know, it's just as soon as I make a bad pass, he's going to drop me and put Albert in the team, and then I'm sitting on the bench for the rest of the year." Because Albert was the best centre back in the league the previous year. And I says, "Look, David, there's a scout over here, or there's a coach over watching Albert tomorrow night, but he needs to play. If he doesn't play, he's not going to see him." If he plays and plays well and he gets a move in January, you'll be playing centre back for the rest of the year. There's, there's no one <laughs> going to take it. So I, I, I actually says, look, your hamstring. Make sure your hamstring's not right. So uh, to be fair, he had a he had a tight hamstring. So Davy goes into the manager, says, look, I can't play. My hamstring's feels like it's going to go. So we turn up on the Tuesday. I haven't told Albert anything. The team sheet comes out. Albert's not expecting to start. Comes out. He's on the team. Davey's injured. Albert, you're playing. He's like, oh, right. So Albert starts taking his pre-workout because he's, he's getting ready for the game. Um, and I go over to Albert before the warm-up. Actually, after the warm-up, I says, by the way, Albert, um, there's a coach here watching you tonight. Uh, just play well. I'll speak to you after the game. And you might get a move to America or Canada. He's like, what do you mean? He says, just play well. And we're playing Crusaders. Crusaders are strikers, six foot four. Chicken, that's his nickname. Beats everyone in the air. And Crusaders just go direct. They're like Burnley. Straight up, he flicks it on, heads it down for people. Albert never lost a header against him the whole game. Now, the boy Chicken ends up scoring, but he scored a, the ball fell down off the other centre back and he volleyed it in. They beat us 1-0. Um, but I... Uh, Colin phones me and says, come to the hotel, I want to speak to you. He says, yeah, I need I need to sign him. Um, get the two years out of your contract. And again, it was more for, it wasn't more for changing clubs, it was more for changing life. I wanted to start a new life in a different company with my wife and start a family somewhere else. Albert wanted to see him. And that's where it came about. We went in and spoke to Linfield and says, look, we want to move. Um, Albert was a, a coach uh, for like, he coached school kids and stuff for the RACFA and, and it went through and that's how it came about. And But it ended up that 
Uh, Cliftonville ended up winning the league that year, and they won it the year later. Um, they were they were actually fantastic at that time. Some quality players, and um, and then we ended up in Edmonton. Albert didn't have a clue where Edmonton was whenever I told him. I and says, "Look, you just released you from your contract." Yeah, we had to speak to the board and get it through and say, "Look, there's an opportunity. Um, nothing's concrete, uh, but obviously, soccer's our main job. But if it doesn't come through." I'm a qualified lifeguard and Albert has his UFAB license. You get a coach coaching job. Um, you know, but we still had to fly to Edmonton and, and do a couple of training sessions for the technical director to pass it, you know, which he did do. Um, but yeah, it was that, that's how it came about. And yeah. and we were there for well it's 2013, we were there for like five years. Mm. Um yeah, and that's what it was. But again. I had to leave my job. Albert had to leave his job. And then we had to get released from Linfield, you know, and uh, and then coming over and actually, it's a big, I had an, I bought an apartment, so I had to get that rented out. I had to sell two cars. You know, it was life-changing. Um, you know, didn't look back since and probably the best thing I've ever done, but it was scary. It was scary, but it was awesome. On the soccer side, you know, it, just I remember as in yes, that that's the year the Cosmos were coming about. Um, so you guys were there just before that. But then when the Cosmos came about later on that year in 2013, you know, going to the Cosmos games and then when Edmonton came in, you know, like besides just seeing like, oh, wow, there's two guys from Northern Ireland, kind of cool. Like it, it, you guys were definitely, I think, not having no, knowing the team extensively, you were both pretty impactful players for the Edmonton team. You know, and, you know, this is a Cosmos team with, you know, on, on the Cosmos side, they had brought in Carlos Mendez from MLS to be the captain, the focal point. But then they also had Marco Senna in the midfield. So a lot of hype. Raul. Raul came later on, but in 2013. Yeah. In 2013. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, seeing Edmonton come to town and seeing both Albert and Daryl, you know, there were other quality players around them, but they were two very – players for that side. Yeah, I remember going to New York to play the Cosmos and first time against Senna and Colin Miller says to me, look, we're going to play a 4-4-1-1 again. You're playing as a 10, but your job is just take Marco Senna out of the game. You know, if you manage to get a goal, maybe we'll sneak a win, but just he, everything goes through Senna. He says he's 35, he can't run uh, he can't move. He's not quick. And I'm like, right, no problem. Came out at half time. Colin says to me, Daryl, are you all right? I says, Colin, I can't get near him. He's too good. And he says, what do you mean he's too good? And I actually had to show Colin on the tactics board and saying, look, if I do this, Mendez does this, or the other big boy, the, um, who was, who's the other one? Was it Diaz or someone like that? Or can't remember. Which uh, guy? Uh, play, he used, used to play beside Mendez. Oh, Reversio. Yeah. Um, I says, look, if I do this, he does this. And if I do that, he does that. I says, what, what am I meant to do? And we didn't actually, there was no solution to it apart from drop off. You know, so it was basically drop off and get compact, try and basically defend a little bit deeper because I was trying to stop him higher up. 
But I, I remember the second half and all I done the second half, I went out, out onto that pitch. Which we was couldn't get the ball. Also, by the way, which was just as a side note, which was not a good pitch. It was a terrible very pitch. pitch. That was Bouncy, after, bobbly. That was Hofstra. the lacrosse field for Hofstra. Yeah. You weren't yeah. even playing at the actual soccer stadium because it's bigger yeah. capacity. And the pitch quality was just, it, it was an interesting kind of like the soccer yeah. team, the college didn't even play there. So pretty funny. Yeah. But again, Senna, he had the best touch. And again, the second half, I just went out. And that was the game. In that second half, that actually took my game personally to another level. Because I what I learned from Senna, I implemented that into my own game. And Jake would have seen it whenever Jake came. And in 2016, uh, whenever I used to drop a little bit deeper to get the ball off, Albert, get the ball off Pap, and, you know, me and Jake would have been on the same wavelength. I'd say, look, whenever I get turned here, make that run between the right back and the right centre back, because a lot of times Jake would have been on the left. And I would have found, found Jake with a 60-yard ball or, you know, a couple of assists, and, and Jake would have found me in the opposite. We Like, I have videos of me setting him up, and then a week later, he sets me up from a diagonal. So it was that sort of connection that I got and the, the awareness of what Senna done. And I remember early in the game, I waited to the centre-back play the ball in the Senna and I went right in tight because I wanted to kick him early doors to let him know you're in for a game, being just the Irish type of me. <laughs> um, and the defender passed the ball in a little bit, little bit too hard and he spoke in Portuguese, I guess, or Spanish, whatever it was to him. Uh, I think it might have been Spanish. He actually spoke to him, spoke to him, and whatever he said to him. The next time the ball came in, the defender passed it in a little bit slower, but Santa was on the half turn and he was looking at me, and he, he knew where the ball was, so I went in tight and he just played a one one time ball around the corner, and then the next time, the defender passed it in hard to him, and I came tight and he played a one two back and then the centre back broke a line, took a touch past me. So then after the game, I actually spoke to Mendes. He says, Mendes, what did he say early early on to the other centre-back? And he was explaining. He was saying, look, depending on my distance to him, you know, pass it in softer so he can see me. But what Senna was doing was he was looking to see, he was, the distance that I was going at, he was able to gauge the distance that I was at and then look beyond me to where his players were or where his players were going to be. And he would play a one-time ball. And it reminded me of watching Paul Scholes, mm. like as a kid from, from Man United, mm. and how he done it. And it was that that second half. I didn't care about what the score was going to be or my defensive role. I was watching Senna the whole half because I knew if I could take this on. And honestly, uh, I went back. I watched his videos because I remember he played for Villarreal. And Raquel me played. And... They almost got to the Champions League final. Raquel me missed a penalty against Arsenal in the semi-final because um, they actually had Manchester United in their group stage. And I was a big Man United fan and they beat Man United in Villarreal 2-0. Mm. And I knew they were a very good team. Uh, the reason I know this is because they were 33-1 to to win the Champions League. Mm. And I was only, I might have been only 16 or 17 at the time. And I put like £10 on them to win it. So I was I was cheering on Villarreal to win the Champions League that year, and that's how I knew, like, came across and knew about Senna. But again, I went back to training and I started 
watching some of his games, watching Michael Carrick, Paul Scholes, you know, these guys that are not quick, but they're a step ahead of everybody. So I started to study that personally. And by doing that, uh, I actually learned more doing that than any other coach has taught me in my whole career. And that second half, I was able to put it in. And I think it was a big, it was a big help to our Edmonton team as well because we started to dominate possession. You know, our midfield three was me, Nick Ledgerwood and Shamit Shaw at the time. And like we didn't have star players to what all the other teams did. Uh, but we had, I, I realized that we needed to get this connection with each other. Um, and it, it's not a connection, a chemistry type in terms of, if you ever play FIFA, you see them doing all the chemistry and all these connections. That's the way I started to see it then because I realized that Senna, everything was connected in that Cosmos team. And that's why Cosmos ended up winning. It wasn't just to do with the star players that they had. Mm. The star players had that connection. And as Jake, whenever Jake came in, he realized, well, not realized, but he would have seen it happening. Um, because the first two years at Edmonton, we were basically a punch bag. We couldn't get the ball off anybody. We couldn't keep the ball especially away games. We'd never win an away game. Very lucky to win an away game. At home, we might have won the odd game. There were seven teams in the league. We finished sixth. Then there was 10 teams. I think we finished eighth. And then there was 12 teams, 2016. We ended up finishing third both years. And I remember sitting down with Colin Miller at the end of the season and, and Colin, Colin seen the game a lot different. Um, you know, we had a, he liked a 4-4-2 hard work style um, a lot of running, but you go down and play teams in Florida in the heat. You go down to Texas and play San Antonio, and it was very difficult to play that British style. So I actually sat down with Colin and says, look, this is what we need to do instead. We need to work a lot more on possession. We need to work a lot more on angles. We need to work a lot more on body shape um, and the quality of pass and the way to pass and, correct, and passing to the correct foot. You know, and and me, that's whenever I started to really look into that type of style. Uh, because you watch a Premier League game and it just happens. As a fan, you see it just happening. But the actual detail, the message on the pass, you know, it's tremendous, the body shape. And that's why the best players don't never get caught in possession of the ball. Mm. Uh, it's not, a lot of the time, it's nothing to do with shape, tactics. You know, the coach can only do so much, but the coach can't make the player be on a certain be on a half turn in a certain position in a certain part of the pitch but the guy passing the ball you know so the chemistry that we built that year and then we you know I remember the Cosmos coming up to Edmonton and I, re I remember before the game they weren't as relaxed as they used to be and I spoke to one of one of their players I think it was Mendez again I said you guys don't seem as confident this time He's like, no, no, we respect you guys now. And we, I think we beat them at home. We beat them at home a few times. Yeah, you scored the winner in the last minute. Yeah, scored the winner last minute. But again, we, we, beat, them, we beat them before. And uh, I think we actually went away and beat them, which was very, yeah. like, we, 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 the year before, we were like, no, there's no way we're going to beat the Cosmos. Um, but we were there, we were challenging. And it was all all down to the team chemistry that we had, the respect, the work rate we had for each other. 
and the connection. And I knew that if I got the ball in a certain part of the pitch and Jake was playing, I knew Jake's going to make this run. If Saini was playing, I knew Saini was going to make this run. Uh, obviously, we brought in Adam Ackersley at left back and Adam came through Manchester United and he's seen the game very similar. Um, and Albert wouldn't have been the, the ball-type centre-back, so to speak. I remember having a wine with Albert in the house. I said, look, we're going to have to change our game slightly because for the team to be successful, this is how we need to be a little bit better. And me and Albert would sit and go over certain games and I would say, like, we'd be sitting watching Man City against Wolves or someone. I'd say, now, look at this. Look at company, what he's doing. How quickly he got into this position to make that angle. You know, people don't really... People take it for granted. Mm. Uh, and again, that's whenever... Then again, the following year, uh, we lost a few players. I left, Adam left. Matt Finocle, obviously, the success that year, Matt made some fantastic saves, mm. you know, which kept us in games. But we had a strong defence. We had a strong goalkeeper. And we always had that at Edmonton. But what we didn't have was finding how to win games. And mm. we knew we had Jake, who could see Jake in training. Jake could, Jake could score more goals than me. And I wouldn't be happy about it. And I'd be like, I'd come in tomorrow and I'd be like, no, no, I have to score more than Jake tomorrow. And it was always me and Jake, maybe Fisky, you know, in terms of the, the best finishers in the team. Uh, Tommy was more of a target man. Um, but again, we had players that could get that goal. The Jakes, the Fiskies, the Tommy, Dustin, me, Saini. Um, that would have been the boys that would have went and got that goal because the defence have done their job, as they usually done. And I think that was a difference, just the chemistry and the belief. You know, mm. I remember the, the Cosmos game at home, first half, I played as a striker. We were 1-0 up. Couldn't get the ball off them. Came in at half-time, I went in the midfield. Tommy went up front. Um, we just kept going, kept going, get into the game. Uh, Nick Leisurewood scores with 10 minutes to go. But right before my goal, like a minute before, Sean Nicklaw clears the ball off the line from Lucky Kasana. He, he beats Matt and Sean just runs back, clears it off the line. They get a throw in, like throw, ball comes in, the falls to actually Gustavo. Gustavo plays a ball to Dustin. Dustin plays a wonderful ball with the outside of his left foot for Tommy. And I remember that whenever the ball was cleared off that line, I was, I was knackered. I was defending the throw in. And then whenever the ball was played to Tommy, I just took off up the pitch. And I, I guess that was the belief. Like For me, that, that game summed up our whole team that season because we, we knew if we were still in the game, we'll get you in the last 10 minutes. And we've done it to many teams. Were, were, were you able to really be the best that you could be? Or you know, were you playing at the level that you were playing at? When you were in England, and then when you first came back to Glen Torrin and you were scoring all those goals, were you back at that level with all the training and everything that the resources maybe you had at Edmonton versus the years in Glen Torrin and Linfield? Yeah, well, over the years, it's always any time that I've put in hard work, like I mean, very, very hard work, and got myself as fit, got my body fat down. Um, and again, I, I'll put a lot of it down to Jake as well. And he doesn't know this. Um, we were in the airport once. And I'm like, it was just me and Jake. 
think I might have been, I'm not sure if Tyson, but the flight got split up and I ended up with Jake. And I know Jake eats very healthily. And I was looking for, I don't know, like a chicken burger or something like that. And Jake goes over to the salad counter and gets this big salad bowl. I don't know if you remember this, Jake. <laughs> was this the, was it, was it one of the Scotland trips? It was a preseason trip? Do you remember? I, I can't even remember where it was, but I, I just remember in the airport. And I, I remember looking, Jake's the fittest in the team. Him and, him and Shamit, like, it was, I don't know if it was during preseason or after preseason. Yeah, it was that first beep uh, test. Yeah, we and I were, Jake got got this big salad bowl. It was full of veg, you know, quinoa, and I'm like, what's this? So I got it. I actually got it, pretending that I normally eat that because I was in. <laughs> honestly, Jake, Jake's laughing. He doesn't know this. So I got it. I got it as well. Tyson probably got sure a burger. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm eating this, and I'm like, this is like eating rabbit food. This is what this is what rabbits are like. And funny enough, I actually got a salad today from Save On Foods and it reminded me of that, that trip. So I realized that I needed to get back to full fitness and get my body fat because I was I was always skinny. But again, you can be skinny and still have like quite a bit of body fat, you know, just your stature. And I knew that these are all healthy nutrients. It gives you energy. Your cells need all this stuff. Uh, and it's actually better for you. I'm thinking, oh, I'll get, I'll get some pasta because there's a lot of carbs in it. But then I realized, hold on, if I eat this, what, what Jake has just got, and I felt the benefits, so I started to do that. And again, I, that season, I started to eat even more healthily. We had Richie Jones, remember? But Richie came back, he was injured. And Richie was always on juicing. He would juice beets, carrots, celery. He would juice anything, everything and anything. Just leave me really uh, clear, juicing, not steroids, juicing juice. Not steroids, juicing <laughs> juice, juicing vegetables. <laughs> so I started to do that as well. And, and again, that, that allowed me in the last 10 minutes to make that last minute run, you know, up the pitch to get another chance. Because again, the more chances you get, the more goals you score. And if you're in the box more often, you're going to score more goals. It's different if you're a striker, you can sort of cheat a little bit and be up there. Um, and again, that actually came down to it. So for me, getting back to my best, it was part to do with the eating and the hard work. We were putting in the hard work anyway. You know, we're training full-time with Edmonton. We're going to the U of A, the, the gym. And the last piece for me was that nutrition because it recovered the muscles a lot quicker. You were able to go again. And it was down to GX Salads and Richie Jones's. uh juicing the vegetables and just drinking straight beet juice, straight carrot juice. It wasn't nice, but it was very beneficial. Uh, and again, that year I remember doing it and it was awesome. You know, and for me, I felt that year, I felt it was, it was down to my best. It wasn't just my body, my mindset, my, I could see things quicker. I could see three players coming at me rather than being tunnel visioned. So my brain was a lot quicker just from eating healthier foods. And I've yeah. seen a huge, huge difference. And, and Jake, you'd actually, you've been out a lot. And I remember the beep test. You destroyed us all in the beep test. I've always been good at beep tests. And I and there's not many people that get too far ahead of me in the beep test. But I remember Jake absolutely destroyed us. And that's whenever I'm like, okay, I have to find out what, 
what this guy's doing because I knew Richie Jones was very fit as well. Um, and again, whenever I seen Hamilton, I knew Richie already drunk a lot of the, the juices. And then I seen Jake taking that salad. I'm like, okay, maybe this is this can help. And I tried it out and it was awesome. But again, we didn't get that food in Scotland, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's an interesting kind of thing you bring up because, I mean, you, you say you learned a lot from me, but I also learned tons from you in terms of the things you're talking about, body shape, the way you open up your hips, finishing is just brilliant. I, I mean, everybody at Edmonton would marvel when you do a finishing step and you just open up, pass the wall, the corner, Matt Van Olko be going the wrong way. So, I, I mean, I definitely picked up things from you as well. But that kind of now when I'm reflecting back, um, you had so many last-minute either equalizing goals or winners. I mean, we did as a team, but I, when I look at your personal season, like Carolina, you scored in the second half. Tampa, you scored the last 20 minutes. Cosmos, you scored last minute. Ottawa, you tied it up in the last – 20 minutes or so Jacksonville you got a winner late like and though the, I mean that's you're basically mentioned every goal you scored that year for the most part and it's all coming in those last 10 20 minutes and I, I mean I definitely think it, it comes down to the way you look after yourself especially in North America when you're dry when you're flying everywhere from Edmonton to Puerto Rico Edmonton to Miami Edmonton to New York every week or every other week with away games so I mean, that's so important, but would you, so reflecting back now, would you say 2016 was your best year uh, as an overall player? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, the reason being is because after that season, um, you know, I put a lot of work in and I said to myself, you know what, I'm going to have a little bit of a rest. So me and the missus, we went to Mexico. Um, you know, I said, you know, I'll, I'll start back training in January. And the NASL wasn't sure if they were going ahead or not. So, you know, I had the contract on the table, then it wasn't on the table because everything was on hold. Uh, but again, I, I wasn't too worried because I knew I had a good year. Teams were interested in me. Um, I said, you know what? I deserve this break. But what happened was I came back, started in January, started doing a little bit, and then NSL was up, back up. And I had an offer from Jacksonville. I had an offer from India 11. Colin Miller had an offer. Um, Cincinnati came in right away. Like this was all honestly all in within two days. And then Matt Kearns, the agent, phoned me. He says, look, New York Cosmos want you. So I had I had five teams wanting me within two days. And I weighed everything up and I seen Cincinnati were going to the MLS, I'm like, oh, this could be my, my chance getting the MLS. But then I had to be there in two weeks' time to start preseason. But I didn't, I wasn't expecting to start back until February time in the NASL. And I was back earlier because the USL started earlier. So I was straight into preseason and I never, I neglected my off season training program because I felt that I wanted to be rewarded for having a good year. And I neglected that, thinking, you know what, it's okay, I'll start in January. Whereas the previous year, I was in the gym with Matt Finocle on Christmas Eve, doing proper sessions, and then phoning the U of A, when are you guys open again, I went back in. Whereas this time, I was like, you know what, I'll go to Mexico, I'll chill out, you know, I deserve it, this type of mentality. I turned up to Cincinnati and straight into preseason, um, in the hard work, beat test, running, we were training in this turf, went down to Florida for preseason and 
and injured my Achilles. And that was all down to my body wasn't conditioned. And the time that I was at Cincinnati trying to fight back to get fit again. And you know yourself, if you get a tendon injury, it's it can take months rather than a muscle injury. It'll take weeks, weeks. And I was fighting fit, fighting fit that whole year. And it was all down to neglecting my off-season training program. And then again, when you're when you're injured, uh, you're not your headspace is not in the right place. You're not happy, things like that. And you know, Edmonton, you guys weren't doing too well. And Colin found out that I wasn't too happy down there, and he phoned me and said, "Would you want to come back?" I says, "Yeah, no problem. Let's come back." Because I was just getting fit again, like getting proper fit, and and that's whenever I came back to Edmonton and realised that. Uh, Things from the year before were a lot different um, as you went through it, Jake. And the I remember the first time I got there, first training session, and a lot of players I played with the year before. I think maybe five guys came over to me, welcomed me back. Um, remember Jake, Tyson, Albert, obviously. Tommy would have came over. And maybe Alan, CB, a couple of, might have been more than that. But I remember a couple of other boys just, didn't even say hello to me. And I'm like, what has happened to here? So I went straight into Colin. I says, Colin, what, what's happened to this place? Like the changing room is dead. What, what's going on? And it just shows you on a personal level and a team level, things can get bad so quickly in terms of performance levels. If you take your foot off the gas slightly, you can drop because of, like that 2016, I was doing a lot of, I, I was trying to put everything together. How do I get to, the, to my peak? Started doing yoga again. You're talking about opening the hips up for finishing. I wouldn't have been able to finish like that if I didn't do yoga because yoga was able to open my hips up and free up the joints in my hips, which allowed me to have more flexibility, which means uh, a greater space in my hips. So if I open my hips up, my back, I could see the goalie, the goalie would move and I would put it the other side. It was a side foot under the other corner or a lot of things like that. So I was going yoga. How do I recover quicker? Eating properly, ice baths, recovery pants, the skins, um, trying to put everything in together. So it take, that actually takes a year maybe to put everything together along with your training and then you get injured and then you have to get back to where it is. You know, so... I guess it's like stocks. Stocks will go up, it'll go down a little bit, you get a little bit of injury or you get fatigued and you have to recover and then you go back up again and go down. And then all of a sudden the stock can just do that. Mm. And in terms of individual and team team performance in the camp, whenever I came back, the chemistry wasn't there. You know, and like the first thing I was like, obviously a lot, a lot went on. Um, the captaincy was changed. Obviously, nothing to do with the captaincy, but if you take a captaincy off a player, maybe you don't have him fully there, 100%. Um, a little bit of scuffles at the end of last year, all the things that went on, but the respect levels weren't there between each other. And for me, that was the huge difference. The, the changing room was segregated. The coaching staff were segregated. Um, it was like, pick a side. And... No, me, I'm I'm a bonder type person. You know, I don't care what you look like, what religion you are. Like, we've got to work together to make things work. 
Um, I, I signed for Glen Torn. I went from Glen Torn to Limfield. Mm. Me personally, it, it didn't bother me because I look at things that, hey, if you want to make things work, you work together. And the strongest people can work with people that they don't particularly like for the greater goal. And that was missing huge. That mm. was missing massively. And then again, at the end of the year, the team ended up falling, but we were trying to get answers. What's going on here? So we can like assess our futures. Mm. And then there was a breakdown with ownership. There's a breakdown with the GM. And then for me, there was no respect levels whatsoever. So like, if I ever go into coaching or move on in the game, I'll take all those experiences and make sure that they're right. These are the fundamentals. These are the basics. These must be in place at all times. If they're not in place, then it's like a deck of cards. It can just collapse. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened at Edmonton. And it wasn't nobody's fault. It wasn't one person's fault. You know, and it, it, it's, it's always a number of things. Um, and again, if to achieve good, you need all those connections, mm-hmm. the chemistry, clicking together. Mm-hmm. But as soon as they start disconnecting, they disconnect a lot quicker. Because trust is a huge thing on the pitch and off the pitch. And once you lose each other's trust, you lose your, your respect. And then, because people look at the modern game and, you know, you may be on Twitter, you see coaches and they're putting up all these, this analysis stuff. Yeah. I watched a video yesterday. It was Alex, Alex Ferguson. You might have seen it. Rio Ferdinand was talking about it. And he had the Chile Miners, the Chile Miners that were caught in the, in the yeah. cave. Yeah. He brought them in the day before a game. Said basically said these are the Chile miners. Uh, like this is what they had to do. They had to work as a team to survive in there for forty days or so, whatever they were in. Uh-huh. And the next day he turns up to the game and he says, "Look, guys, I done my team talk yesterday." Um, and basically that was his team talk. Uh-huh. It wasn't to do with tactics, formations. It was to do with Alex Ferguson knew you have to stick together and work as a team if you want to achieve. And, and again, that's the basics, you know, because you can have the best. Like obviously, you look at Man City and they have all the tactics and whenever it's clicking, it's awesome. But whenever it's not clicking, you know, it's, you know, you see teams trying to play out from the back, thinking they have all this sussed out and then you lose the ball and there's a goal. And it's like, well, what, what, what was lost there? It was a bit of communication. A lot of times it's to do with things I was actually speaking to Albert last week. You know, uh, now scouts and teams and coaches, they'll assess a player and they'll go, how many goals, how many assists? Is he fast? You know, does he, how does he cross the ball? But a lot of the part is that to win stuff, it's the stuff that you actually can't, you can't measure in players. It's very difficult to measure. And if you look over all the past successful teams. You look at Chelsea whenever Mourinho came in, they had John Terry, they had Carvalho, Lampard, Drogba. These weren't just good players. They were mentally tough and they understood mm. the, the mental side of the game. Then you look at Man United whenever they had Roy Keane, you know, David Beckham, uh, Ferdinand, Fittage, Yapstam. Mm. You look at Liverpool now, Jordan Henderson, you know, James Milner, you know, these, these guys are very underrated when it comes to the mental side because mm. they know, it, like you'll see a video clip of maybe 
think it was Jordan Henderson or James Milner before the game, he was the captain. And he's not saying about the tactics. He's saying, make sure you're on the front foot. Make sure we communicate. Make sure we stick, like, stick, uh, stick together. This stuff that you can't measure in a player that's hidden from all the analysis, that is the ingredients that actually takes you to winning something or takes you to the next level. Um, and again, I, I've been very lucky to watch Manchester United as a kid because my dad supported them. And luckily, to, like from no age, watching players coming through, Bram McClure, Eric Cantona, Steve Bruce, yeah. under Alex Ferguson, I was able to, I never missed a game, watch Alex Ferguson and the team for 20-odd years. And, and I realised that United always got, they usually got teams in the second half yeah. because they sussed them out and they got out. Their first line of defence was attack. Obviously, they had fantastic players. But again, you know, a lot of the time it's not, obviously, tactics and analysis plays a huge part. But nowadays, in the modern game, there's a big part that's overlooked is the mental aspect of players. Because again, you can have the best player. You can have Messi, right? You put him in your team. But if Messi turns up and he doesn't want to work for the team and he can't be bothered that day, mm. like even though he's the greatest player in the world and possibly the greatest player ever, you're not going to get much out of him. Mm. Obviously, he'll, he'll pick off a pass that will split someone. But there's games I watch, I've watched Messi, especially against Liverpool. Remember Liverpool beat them 4-0? And yeah, yeah. Messi, greatest player in the world. A lot of Barcelona players were three 0 up from the game before. They were walking about, and that was a motivational thing. And Liverpool just they sensed, they smelled blood, and they went for it. Mm-hmm. So again, it was nothing to do with who's the better team, because the game before Barcelona absolutely destroyed them. It was the mental side for that night, and that's the big thing that's overlooked in terms of recruitment of players. Let's, let's, let's fast forward a little bit just because um, I think it's been well covered, you know, in other areas as far as, you know, you had that um, that 2018 was like your lost season for a lot of personal reasons and whatnot. But then I remember sabbatical. we're going to call it a sabbatical a sabbatical. And then <laughs> but I remember uh, you were doing an interview uh, over in Northern Ireland and, and then um, heading into 2019, you were kind of in the offseason, you were. You were back in Northern Ireland now from Canada. You were you were training with um, some of the clubs there in Northern Ireland. Um, Albert ended up signing, you know, he had been in Iceland, ended up signing with what with uh, Balmina, I believe. But you were you were looking and then you ended up ultimately with Sligo Rovers. Could you just kind of take us through that time and why didn't you go back to Northern Ireland? What what brought you to Sligo? Was it a, you know a chance to play League of Ireland and for you know, finally, after all these years, you know, what led into that? Yeah, well, uh, at the end of the 20, was the end of 2017 season, the, the team, Edmonton folded. Um, three days later, I found out my wife was pregnant. So, and my wife just started a new job. So she, she switched jobs and it worked out that for her to get, go off on maternity, she had to be working five months in her new job. Right, so she switched. She had to work five months to get enough hours and qualification in Canada to go off on maternity. 
and you know still get paid maternity pay from her work. So it worked out. It was November time. I'm like, okay, the Edmonton weren't going ahead. You know what? I'll just wait until May time. Um, I was I booked in to start my UFA the UFA coaching badges in Belfast. So I'm like, you know what? She'll go off maternity. Let's go home and play for a while. So I actually went 2018, went back, done my coaching badges. I was actually to fly over to Scotland, to Ross County, because they were very interested. Linfield were interested. Um, Lauren were interested, who's Albert's with now. And there was teams in Northern Ireland and Ross County as well. And the first week on the coaching course, I was to do two weeks there and then fly over as like a fitness type, make sure I was fit, hopefully get a contract or sign for someone and then phone my wife, say, look, this is where we're going. I was going to fly back to Edmonton, pack everything up and then fly to wherever I was signing for. The first week I was there, my wife phoned me and she says, I'm in the hospital. I've got a, like a, a blood condition uh, in the legs. I can't fly. So she, my wife wasn't, the doctor says you can't fly across the Atlantic. It's too dangerous because if you swell up and you can take a blood clot or things like that. So it meant that we're stuck in Edmonton until the baby was born. Baby was due in August. So again, the season in the UK starts, it starts in August. So there were still, still teams, I was still speaking to teams saying, this is what it is. I'll continue to train. I'll be fit. I'll be ready to come in. Um, but then I, uh, I spoke with Edmonton. They were going to the CPL for 2019. And he says to me, look, there's a chance here. You can coach the under 16s. You can play. I'm like, yeah, sure. No problem. So I told all the other teams in Northern Ireland and Scotland, you know what? I'm just going to stay in Edmonton. Um, I'll wait until the team starts training in February or March time and just go to the CPL. I'm in my coaching badges. I, it means I can do some coaching. And then all of a sudden, Edmonton changed their mind. Um, for whatever reason, there's a lot of stuff that I can't really go into, but they changed their mind. And I'm like, okay, so I've just had a baby, stuck in Edmonton, haven't had a paycheck in over a year. My wife's wages are cut in half. What do I do now? So that's whenever I said to my wife, you know what? Like, this is, this is crap, basically. Let's go. And we're going back home. So... Flew back home, um, didn't know who was going to sign for her, but again, we flew back, ended up, we had to get the child's passport. We had to wait a couple of months to get that. Um, then we went back in November. The, the teams weren't really going to start signing until January because of their, their wage structure uh, in Northern Ireland. Um, and then I, I never even looked into Southern Ireland. And I was like, you know what, I'll come back. I'll go back to Canada. I'll sign for another team. Um, we'll go back in February or March time. Speaking to a few teams, a few Canadian teams that wanted me, nothing concrete. And then I got a call. Um, there was an agent, David Kennedy, from Northern Ireland. And he was like, you know what? I'll look at a, um, he's basically a, a recruitment. He's, he's not really into soccer, but he started to give it a go. And then he phones me and says, what about Sligo? And Liam Buckley, who signed Jake for some pats. Uh, he was there and Dave Campbell. They they knew me from the time I played for Glen Torn against St. Pats 10 years previously or eight years previous, whatever length of time it was. So they were aware of me. 
And he says, Sligo want you to, they want to see you. Like, drive down. We're playing Balna Mallard. So I'm like, oh, great. I don't have to say, drive to Sligo. Sligo's three and a half, four hours, whereas Balna Mallard's two and a half. But the game get called off with the snow. At that time, Dunfermline uh, phoned me. Used to be the Carolina, Carolina's assistant manager, uh, Greg Shields. He phones me. He's the assistant manager at Dunfermline. He phones me and says, look, i seen you on LinkedIn. Uh, you're free and you're back in Belfast. I'm like, yeah. He's like, do you want to come over and sign till the end of the season? You know, we have January, February, March, April, a few seasons. And I'm like, yeah, well, let me call you. And he'll let me call you in a couple of days. I'm, I'm actually, I'm meant to go to Sligo. We've got a game. So Sligo actually got a game against Athlone in Athlone. So I had to drive. I drove to Sligo three and a half hours, jumped on the bus, Another hour or two down the afternoon. Played, they were playing a pre-season game. Uh, played the game, didn't think anything of it. Get onto the bus. All the boys are like, oh, I want you to sign. Like, the manager's off the bus. He, he, Liam Buckley's off the bus on the phone. He's on the phone to your agent, you know, cracking jokes. I'm like, yeah, sure. But I'm on my phone, like, about to phone Greg Shields. They say, look, let's go over. Because I played all right. I didn't think it was I played well. I think I've done all right, but not as good as I can do. So I'm on the phone. I'm like, you know what? The boys will be tired. I'll phone Greg Shields while I'm on the bus and say, look, can I come over? He just want to, he actually says, look, we just need a backup person that can score goals. He says, that's all we need right now. Come over. You'll come off the bench to try and win a go, win the game or something like that. That's all we need right now. So Liam Buckley finishes the phone. He's walking under the bus, sitting there. My phone rings. It's my agent. He phones me. He says, yes, he wants to get the deal done. I've just spoke to him. All the players are like, is that your agent? They're all, <laughs> all the players started celebrating. I'd, I'd never, I'd honestly never experienced that before. So right there and then, I'm like, this is a good thing. And obviously, playing for Linfield, um, being a Protestant, going down south, um, for me, it was always a little bit, you know, a little bit weary type thing. How will I get treated? Obviously, like Dixie, Dean Cheese went to, to Derry and got a little bit of abuse. Derry's a little bit different than Sligo. So I actually, I get, drove back home. It was 12 o'clock at night or something. I got home, spoke to my wife the next day and says, look, Sligo want to offer me a contract for the year. I can take Sligo. I spoke to Greg Shields. He says, look, don't be signing, fly over. He says, just want to make sure you're fit. I says, look, I just played a game yesterday and they want to sign me, so you know I'm fit. Um, so it was basically take a four-month contract or take a 10-month contract mm. to Sligo. Plus, if you're in Dunfermline, you, I couldn't go home to see family much. Mm. The whole point was newborn baby. I want my mom and dad. I want uh, my wife's mom and dad to see the baby as much as possible before we actually move back to Canada because mm. we knew we wanted to live there. So I signed for Sligo. Um, I just says to Liam Buckley, look, I have a family. As long as you sort out accommodation and there's enough money there to see us through, uh, no problem. And Liam, as Jake knows, he's an awesome guy. Uh, he looked after me. Actually lived around the corner from him, just outside Sligo. Went down and honestly, absolutely loved every minute of it. The, the people in Sligo are just brought me back to proper football mm. you know going going into the, the petrol station to fill up your gas maybe in the morning of a game 
and the fans are like, get stuck into them tonight, you know, <laughs> speaking to you. And just little things like that. And and again, I was down. I didn't get a full pre-season under me, so it took me a while to get up to speed. I got up to speed, had a good game against Dundalk. We beat Dundalk at home. Uh, scored a great goal against Shamrock Rovers. Started to get into the team. Then I got a little injury. Then I had to fight back again. But again, you know, we had a good year. It was a, it was Liam's first year to get uh, the base, so to speak. Yeah. And I felt I played a huge part in that in terms of players. Uh, Niall Morhan, the midfielder, he got player of the year. I, actually, he's only 19. I worked a lot with him during training. Yeah. Um, you know, just simple things like we're doing little possession drills, you know, get get on the blind side of the, the player that's marking you. Don't be, don't be letting them be behind you. Just come here a couple of yards, simple things. Because he can take his game to another level, which he has done this year. Um, but for me, it was it was awesome. Uh, it was freezing, mind you. Sligo was a cold place. Yeah. But for me, it it made me fall in love with football again because I missed 2018. Then I wasn't treated well in terms of promises made to me. Um, and again, I'm like, you know what? I don't I don't know if I want to play anymore. Mm. And going to Sligo. And the changing room was fantastic. The coaches were fantastic. And in Ireland, it, there's a f- famous quote, as Jake would know, it is what it is. Mm. And that's what it was. You knew what you got from everybody. And it was, you knew where you stood. There was no backstabbing going on. It was just present yourself who you are and we'll stick by you. Mm. And that's what it was. And, you know, obviously... Celtic would have Celtic were the dominant team beating Rangers and I'd come in the next day and all the boys are just torturing me. Lost a fortune betting betting a player's 20 euros. <laughs> oh, if you're betting him, you have to bet me. You know, so losing a fortune and whenever Celtic beat Rangers and I would have made a fortune this year if I had still been there. <laughs> <laughs> but again, was, um, was there any chance so, of, of, of going back to Northern Ireland or was it just the 10 month contracts like you know you have yeah, you know, I, I spoke to Liam um, and I says, look, my family, we want to go back to Canada. Um, you know, that's that's what we want to do. Um, my priority is my family, first mm-hmm. and foremost. Football, I'll always give 110% wherever I am. Um, and I, at the end of the year, I says, look, I want to try and get back to Canada. And I spoke to Valor um, and then I spoke with Liam. I says, look, you know, it's best for me and it's best for you that I obviously move on. Mm. Um, I, I says I've, I've done quite well, but I think you can bring in a better player to take the game, to take the team to another level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know they brought in Will Seymour, and for me, I'm like that. That's the type of player that they need to bring in. You know, Will's a little bit younger than me and a little bit more energy, and you'll take that team to a little bit further with Niall in the midfield as well Dave Colley's top quality centre midfield what a midfield partner he was you know so bringing in Will bringing in Niall breaking through becoming more experienced as a 20 year old now and then Dave getting back to full fitness those three in the middle um, a couple of others are as well but for me I'm like 
I actually said to Liam and he agreed with me and I says, look, I'm going back to Canada as soon as I get an offer anyway. But I think it's a good thing for both of us. And like, till this day, I haven't been so thankful as signing for Sligo in my life. Mm. Uh, out of all my career, Sligo going there and realizing that, you know what, there's a lot, there's a lot to the game. And it was feeling loved again, feeling valued in the changing room, mm. feeling respected. Um, people picking you up when you were down and you were picking people up when they were down. Mm. Uh, and that's what I grew up with. Whereas in North America, it seems a little bit different. It's, it's like if two players are in the same position and there's a player not playing too well, he's sort of got a little bit of, uh, what's the German word, Schattenfreude. You know, he's sort of happy that he's doing bad. You know, in, in Ireland, we didn't really... We, do, we don't really have that um, unless it's actually a rival, but if it's within the team, mm. you know, it's like if I, if me and Jake say fighting for one position and he's not doing too well, I'll still say, Jake, this is what you need to do a little bit better, you know, and help him instead of just letting him fade away slightly so I can pounce on him. Mm. Um, and th I think that's a huge difference between their and here, um, it's sort of, uh, I guess it's more honesty, in my opinion. Um, not, uh, no politics. Mm. That would be the easy way to put it. No politics. But I yeah. love, like, I love Sligo. I still speak to a lot of the players there. Mm. Um, and the league is very honest. Mm. You know, and the, Sligo done fantastic this year. I know. Will Seymour's went to Finn Harps, Ronan Cochran's went to St. Pat's, who's Ronan's came on leaps and bounds. What a striker he, he's became. But they've got Romeo back, um, which is a huge plus, and I'm sure they'll bring in a couple of others. But I think Sligo will do pretty good this year. Guarantee you they'll bring in a couple of others. <laughs> Dave, Dave is working yeah. on it now. Uh, is he <laughs> Dave is working on it now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's an interesting but, uh, point you bring up, Daryl, in, in the difference between North America and over in Ireland and in the UK, because I've noticed the same thing. Like, it seems to me like the way you talk, spoke about at the beginning of the podcast and that you don't play the game for money. I mean, you need the money, but you play the game to win things. And I feel like the reverse as a generality or general statement, whatever, it would, the reverse would be true in America. You play the game for the financial side, you pay it for team of the week, you play it for like player of the month, you play it for all these individual things that are partially created by the American just society. Um, yeah. And I think the lot of the Irish way would be, I play the game to win things. And that's why you have, if you're on the bench, you're still encouraging the guy in front of you because you know he's playing. So if you want to win things, he's got to perform. Um, so that's why I think the culture, from my experience in the two places anyway, I think that's why the culture is a bit different. Um, yeah, but 100%. It's yeah. two different levels in terms of that type of culture. And that's, for me, obviously I'm with Valor and hoping to have a contract signed soon, but that's what I'm trying to bring in because I felt that me and Albert brought that to Edmonton. After a couple of years, we obviously got rid of some players that would have been a cancer in the dressing room um, but you, you mentioned the word culture it's very easy you know to read a book and say oh we'll read a book on the New Zealand All Blacks or on Man United and this is how you put a culture it doesn't work like that it works at the ground floor in the changing room 
and basically it's if you have if, if you ever see two brothers and i don't know if you have a brother i don't have a brother i've got sisters but yeah. i had two. two cousins two cousins and they were twins and they would fight all the time but they were best friends like literally fight punch each other and stuff but they were best friends and if someone if someone went against that brother the other brother backed them up and it was that sort of honesty culture type thing where if you have players that are like brothers you know i could say jake that was crap you were terrible today and you would not take offense to that you would say you know what you're right and then whenever i had a bad game because again people would call me and albert the belfast brothers yeah. and after games after games like in the in, in away trips or if we were at home uh like i would say to albert you were crap today like you need to be better next week and he would say the same to me and then he would say well why was it crap i'd say well what about that pass you gave jake you know you put you put him in the crap and and he got the blame for it he says that was your fault or you give away the goal and cost us the game and the two of us would bounce off each other um because we were able to be that straightforward because we obviously grew up from the same area but we knew where we grew up it's like I could I could just say Albert you were crap today and that that was a compliment mm. that was a compliment in terms of it wasn't a compliment and literally a compliment it was a compliment to say you know what thanks for thanks for letting me know mm. what I'm telling him is get direct together you need to improve I'm helping him and that's how in Ireland that's how it sort of is um it, it's like you know where you stand with people. That's what it is, and there's no beating around the bush. Yeah, moving forward without like um, you know nothing's official, so we don't want to you know we want to hold off. But like just generally, um, what's what's the next step now? Or is the immediate plan you know in your mind move ahead in Canada uh, with the Canadian League, you know, to and looking to win something in Canada? Is that the goal, or what do you yeah. do? Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously, like I came in pre-season this year. Um, I came in fit, was was feeling good, and then obviously COVID hit, and we're doing Zoom calls at home. Winnipeg, it was minus twenty degrees, so you couldn't get outside and do running. All the gyms are shut. Uh, so whenever you get to my age, you need to keep on top of things. If you don't keep on top of things, you lose your fitness a lot quicker than you were when you were nineteen, twenty. So then when we eventually get back to training and we're like, right, we're going to PEI in four weeks' time, we're straight into this hardcore training on AstroTurf as well. You know, so I actually, again, I wasn't conditioned to what I was prior to COVID. And I got injured like two weeks before the tournament. So whenever we went to PEI, I would have been 70% tops fitness-wise. I played the first game against Cavalry, got took off at half time knowing I'm way off it here and it was just down to I get injured at the wrong time I wasn't able to get make up those weeks and then I'm straight into a game and as, as Jake knows if you're straight into a game and you haven't got the, the base under you it doesn't matter who you are you, you will struggle you're you're two yards off it um, you can't make a recovery run because you've ran forward you can't run forward because you've made a recovery run uh, you know so that's what happened in, in that and then obviously we were there for I think six weeks. Grasley got back up the speed a little bit, and it wasn't really until uh, 
the last game against Forge when I felt, you know, maybe I've got 60 full minutes in me, which I, I says to the manager, I says, look, I've got 60 full minutes in me. And he actually played me as a false nine. We played a 3-4-3 three, three, and I played as a false nine and played well. Um, but again, it, it was difficult this year on a personal note um, because what what I shown at the at the island games, so to, as they called it, was a fraction of what I can still give. Um, so as soon as the island games finished, we were home in September. I got the, the U of A, the, the, the gym workout, me, Jake and Tommy, we were on the same, uh, the same yeah. workout that they gave us. Yeah. Uh, Cause we were they the, broke, the They broke it up by position. That's what they did. They yeah. had strike to do a workout, midfielders and then defenders and keepers did different workouts. Yeah. So uh, they put me in with Jake, the Tommy, just to look after them. But uh, no, uh, September. I've, I've been I've been doing that since since September. Um, right now, I'm doing it Monday to Friday. Uh, I finished this morning, and I, I spoke with Rob Gale. I says, "Look, you obviously you seen glimpse glimpse of me before COVID in training." I says, and I wasn't even fully fit because I hadn't had any games under me. I says, I don't play this game for money. I play it for the love and I want to win a trophy before I have to retire. I says, but if I continue to put the training in, I think I can play until I'm 40 because I've never had pace. I've always been naturally fit. And as long as I keep my brain ticking over, you know, and get my body shape, I think I can play for a little bit longer for sure. Um, So again, I, I spoke to Rob and said, look, Let's get something done. Like I want to stay here. Family settled. Child of daycare doing super. Um, so I'm just waiting for that to come through, and and I'm hoping for it to be done in the next few weeks. But in football, you never know what can happen. Um, but the only goal to score this year was against Edmonton, which was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They get they get <laughs> <laughs> they get they they get what they deserve on that one. Yeah. <laughs> what comes around goes around. But uh, it's been great catching up. Um, I've learned a lot about your career, and I think that I didn't even know before. And I think this is a great episode for a kid to listen to. Uh, probably the best um, if they want to learn about the games, they want to learn about the professional games, they want to learn about different cultures. Uh, so you've shared a lot of great stuff, and we can't wait. We can't wait to put this out. Um, so thanks for sharing your oh. time. Before we jump off, though, Daryl, we need a really good Jake story, if you haven't. Uh, you always try to do this. <laughs> <laughs> a really good one. He already told the he already told the salad story. What else is there? Uh, this guy Jake story. <laughs> of a lot of good Tyson stories. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of Jake because Jake was the most professional out of everybody. You know, yeah, but he's a painter. Yeah, so we need something. You know, there's got to be something. I know. Like, uh. <laughs> I don't really know if I seen. I don't even know if I seen him with a beer in his hand. Um, Jake could inform me a little bit. Can you give me a little tip to get me going here? I mean, well, Dave is the one who wants the story. I don't have anything for you. I, I would. I would say um, any Gustavo story would be good. Oh, the Gustavo story. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, the Gustavo. I'll actually tell a Gustavo story. Um, <laughs> down in, we're, we're down in Oklahoma and we're losing 1-0 Rio, Rio OKC we're losing 1-0 yeah, cool. Gustavo comes off the bench I get substituted off so I, I'm sitting on the bench and Colin Miller 
gives Gustavo a couple of instructions. Does a couple of things that he didn't want him to do. There's about five minutes left of the game. We're losing one 0 Colin Miller turns around to the bench and goes, "Remind me not to sign another player that can't speak English." <laughs> so we're like, "Oh, whatever." Five minutes later, Gustavo's about thirty yards from goal, pulls it onto his left foot. Never seen him kick a ball with his left foot in my life. He always used the outside of his right foot. Pulls it onto his left foot. Hits it from 30 yards off the barn in. One of the best goals I've ever seen. Runs away, starts doing all these flips and back flips. And we're like, well, I remember saying to Colin, oh, you, may, you may get a few boys, at, you know, a few of the South American boys, if they can do that. He's like, no, nah, I can't, can't sign another boy. I can't speak English because I can't take instructions. Two weeks later, we signed uh, Nico DiBiase from Argentina. Literally couldn't, literally couldn't even say yes or no. <laughs> Brings him in. Hardly pleasant because he can't speak English. <laughs> <laughs> and and in fairness to Gustavo, he could speak English. It was just yeah. bro- you could understand him perfectly fine. It was it was just broken yeah. English. But yeah. Gustavo was a character. I remember he would, uh, if he's listening to this podcast, he'd hate this story. But he would uh, he'd go into the shower. He'd train in his boxers or whatever his briefs, and he would have. I think he had two or three pairs with him in Edmonton. That's it. So he would go. He would train in a pair of boxers. He'd go into the shower, he'd wash his boxers in the shower, then he'd put on a fresh pair, his second pair after training, and he'd leave the boxers hanging up so he could wear them for training the next day. <laughs> the, man, the man literally had, he had like, honestly, like three pairs. He had like four shirts, three boxers. He came in a back with a backpack to Edmonton from Brazil. It was, it was wild. He was a character. <laughs> What a guy, though! What a guy! What a guy! He, but he was—he's an example of a guy that didn't play a lot for us, but I actually think had a big influence on our success because of the lightheartedness he'd bring to the dressing room. Like everybody liked him, always joking around, and he was there 2016, and then they let him go for 2017. Um, yeah, but it's—it's it's so important the off the field, the locker room, the dressing room type things that you, that you don't know that you can't measure, like you were talking about earlier. Yeah. The thing with Gustavo, I, I used to say to him, like, you're Brazilian, you're supposed to have 20 tricks. He says, no, no, one one trick. And he had the, he had the chop, the fake, fake chop. It was the best chop I've ever seen. I'm telling you, like, Suarez is probably closest to it in terms of the chop. JJ Acacia. But Gustavo, when he done that chop, you know, it, it was the best. I remember he done it in Scotland, got the penalty. Yeah. I said, Give me that ball. I'm taking the penalty. <laughs> I was like, I says, Gustavo, just get in the box and do the chop. You'll get us a penalty every time. Yeah. But he was a fantastic guy. And, you know, again, Brazilians, Argentinians, South Americans, they, they play it for the love. You don't do it for the money. Um, and you see their passion. You know, uh, I guess the Spanish and the Germans are like that uh, as well. You see Juan Mata at Man United. But he doesn't play and the team wins, he's on the pitch celebrating with the players. Um, you know, so it's it's that culture of South America, I guess. But Gustavo, oh, he's absolutely heart of gold. Um, great guy. We didn't play, we only played with him for a year, I think. Yeah. Um, but what a guy. And I know Jake got became really close with him. I still speak with Gustavo till this day. Uh, his son, the son is called Luca, same as my son, spelt differently born around the same age but yeah he's a, he's a tremendous guy and you, there's players you'll play with that you keep in contact and there's players that 
you'll, you'll not see, you'll not even hear about for the rest of your career. Um, Gustavo would be one of them. Jake's another um, from that team. Uh, the year before, there would have been Lance Lang, Eddie Edward, Tommy, uh, Frank, players like that that you, you just get connections with. Um, but from that 2016 team, we had a lot of connections, a lot of um, chemistry, and I guess a lot of boys still speak with each other quite a lot. Um, but that, that's what we had in that team. There might have, might have been one of one or two players that you didn't like so much, not going to name names, but um, we made, made it straight to them that as long as you put a shift in on the pitch, then everything will be fine. But yeah, there's not too many stories about Jake because everything's just so... <laughs> So professional, he keeps it well. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, no one ever knows the, the quiet <laughs> yeah. ones. But what, what is the quiet ones are the most dangerous, isn't that the saying? You gotta watch out for them. Well, <laughs> you know, everyone that is listening, make sure to follow uh Daryl on Instagram and Twitter. You, you're pretty active on social media, um, not hard to find you too, right? Just t- put in Daryl Fordyce. I'm not too much active on it, I wouldn't say. Once no, you, once you've a, no, once you've a kid, like if there's a funny video with a kid, I'll throw it up on my Insta story, but yeah. not not too much now. Um, I, well, every time I went on it over the past couple of years, everything was to do with the politics in America. Oh, um, yeah. it was just all propaganda being spewed out all over it, and I'm mm. like, you know what, I can't be bothered with this. Mm. Um, but I guess you guys have. I guess you'll you'll get a little bit better next year. Um, heal, as the word is down there now. <laughs> I, I, I went through it. I went through it in Northern Ireland um, with the, the politics side, and you know, again, it it doesn't work unless two sides respect each other and work together. That's that's how it is because people have their views. Some people have stronger views, um, and they always talk about the left and the right and this bar. How, where are you on it and this? doesn't matter where you are on it if you're not willing to work with someone then you're you're a cancer so yeah. to speak you're if you're not willing to work with somebody whether they share the same views with you or not then what is the point you're just going to be stuck in your own ways jake and i were talking we think we're just going to move out to winnipeg and hang out with you you know a little more peaceful up there <laughs> <laughs> very where, where peaceful <laughs> uh, actually living in a, i live in an area here that's very it's very Asian dominant, um, you know, and the way the, the Asians live, very peaceful, and you see them out doing their stretches and, and stuff, going for jogs, and very peaceful people. And that's where I, we actually live in in Winnipeg, um, away from Tyson, which is a good thing. Yes. Yeah. Stay away from uh, that, man. <laughs> no, but it's, it's all good here. and. Um, you know, I want to waste Jake good luck for this year coming up. Um, I, I was trying to get him up to Canada, but he wasn't having it. Well, you never know. As of this yeah. recording, nothing has been announced, Daryl. So, yeah. <laughs> Asia, we discussed that. Uh, Bangladesh police was the winner in our poll. We had on Twitter. Slago Rovers, not Bangladesh. Bang- well, you never know. You never know. Slago need another striker. Slago do need another striker. We'll actively working on that and uh valor if there's an opening might might be a contender although we'll see when uh yeah. you know, the announcements come out if, uh, the, the, th- the thing with jake is 
you know, obviously at Edmonton, we played midfield a lot of the time. But like I, we used to say, I remember me and Albert saying to Colin, like, just throw Jake up front beside Tommy. And he was like, no, we need three men in the middle of the park because the assistant manager at the time was very evident. And we were like, just one of the strikers can drop in as a 10 and just do a job in the midfielder. And I can sit beside either Nick or Shamit or them two sit with whoever it is. Could he always get your goals? And I don't. I honestly, I seen his highlight video, and like I honestly didn't realize the quality of goals that you actually did score. You have scored in your career, and I seen it in training. It didn't matter. You score goals for fun in training when you played up front because whenever we had a squad game. Jake was up front because there was only two strikers, so to speak, Tommy and Jake at the time, and then I would have been sort of a backup because I was playing midfield. But then whenever Jake's starting, he's in the squad game, he's, if he's in the starting 11, he's on the left. But then whenever he's not in the starting 11, he was up front and he had score all the time. And like, I, obviously it's a lot different and managers have their different viewpoints and how they see the game, how they want to play the game. But without doubt, no matter where you go, Jake, you'll score goals because you just have that striker's instinct. Um, and people say, talk about the striker's, striker's instinct. What is it? Being in the right place at the right time, all this stuff. But again, it's being on your toes. You, you were always on your toes. You're always moving in and around the box. You, you're never standing still. And when someone's on your toes, you're on the front foot, as soon as that ball drops or there's an opening, you're on your toes, you're ready for it. It's like getting ready to sprint. Um, if someone's standing still and someone's jogging slightly behind them and then they go at the same time, the guy that's slightly jogging, he's going to go ahead first because he's not in the static of the season. And that's what you have. It's Again, we used to say you're Jamie Vardy and that's how Jamie Vardy is, Leicester. You watch him playing. He's always on his toes. He's always on the shoulder. Um, and again, as you get a little bit older, you might have to drop into, you know, a, a deeper type role, like a number 10 or coming off the bench to try and get a winner, stuff like that. Um, even on the left, on the right, but very versatile. And the one thing I will say is the next, how old are you, are you now, Jake? 29? Yeah, 25. Yeah. Just turned 30. Yeah. Yeah. But what you will find now, and, and I find it, is you will start seeing the game a lot quicker and, and seeing moves before they even happen. And then, again, you watch Jamie Vardy now for Leicester. You think, oh, he's not doing much. And then, bang, there's a goal. Or, like, he hasn't done anything. Yeah. You know, and, and that's that's the type of you are. You'll, you'll sense it where you'll realise that, okay, I'm not as quick as I used to be. Um, I need to be in this position. I need to be in a better position to make up for that loss. And that's what you will do. And you'll, you'll figure that out playing yourself. Yeah. And it just comes naturally. People talk about experience um, and what is experience. But, you know, a 22-year-old can have experience if he understands that a lot earlier. Um, but again, I think it's, it's all to do with your thinking. When you're younger, you don't have to. When you get a little bit older, it's like, okay, I have to. And then you actually put your mind to it. And that's what you'll find in the next few years because that's what I've, I've found in the, over the past few years. Yeah. Well, um, I, I appreciate you flattering me on my own podcast. Um, it, means <laughs> a lot. it means a lot coming from, from a guy like you, for sure. Uh, 
Edmonton's all-time leading goal scorer. I'm sure you have close to 100 goals in your career over the years. Um, but it's – I mean, it means a lot. I think one of the great part about this game is the people you meet along the way, kind of like what we discussed a little bit with Luke Gustavo. And to have you as a resource of mine and, and you and vice versa is, is great because I know – even if we haven't talked for a year, we don't go that long, but maybe six months. I know I can be like, Hey, what'd you think of this game or this, this play or whatever. I remember I missed a sitter against Edmonton or for Edmonton when, um, before you, when you were signed to Cincinnati and you texted me right away, you were like, ah, it was harder than it looked. The ball bobbled up on you or whatever you said. So it's, it's, it's great having you as a resource and it was great having you on the podcast. So, so thanks for all your time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank uh, you very much, Daryl. Hopefully it helps everyone. Oh, yeah. definitely. Talk to you guys. Yeah, they'll, they'll learn a thing or two. episode, for sure. Yeah. Get a promoted, Daryl. <laughs> Social media. Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, thanks, Daryl. Until next time, yeah. Dave. I'm the athlete. I'm the advocate. And we are the aristocrats. <laughs>